Hey there, everybody. We are back with another long overdue episode of the Free Willed and Fired Up podcast. And what we're going to be covering today is actually a missing podcast that somehow went overlooked, but I think it's still very important to cover. It can be very relevant uh, to today, to combating uh, those forces and ideologies and people that wish to go against uh, God, against the Gospels, against the mission that genuine Christians are given in the world. And so it's certainly worth uh, considering, and even though it was previously overlooked, there is absolutely uh, reason and justification for me to go back and try to do podcast number 15, all right? So season one, podcast number 15. So in case any of you were wondering, you know, what in the world happened, where is podcast number 15? It was skipped over, but here we go. We have a nice follow-up, uh, and this was actually meant to be a natural follow-up to uh, that series, that five-part series, I believe it was, on Satanism and culture. This is kind of a, an example and an exploration of, you know, an example of a type of satanic uh, ideology that has manifested itself into the popular culture, you know, into common usage, even down to um, common phrases that you see people use in, uh, in their everyday talks and interactions with other people. You know, where even if they don't, you know, personally uh, identify themselves as satanic, they are certainly still adopting and using, um, whether they mean to or not, certain phrases that evoke a very uh, satanic sort of underlying philosophy. And it certainly is not good for society and certainly should not be tolerated or embraced uh, by people of the church. Certainly, if their plans are to be genuine Christians, they should not allow for some of these phrases uh, to be used so casually, and they should know, you know, not only to uh, discern what these phrases mean, but also should then use this understanding that I'm going to try and give you today as license, as justification to uh, address it, you know, identify the uh, immorality of it to not tolerate it on the street, to not tolerate it certainly in the churches uh, so that God's will and purpose can be uh, better fulfilled and so that we don't stand in the way of God, but rather return back to our proper function, which is to abide in the will and direction of God so that we can improve society, improve the world, uh, help bring as many people to God as possible uh, before the end of days. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and let's jump into the podcast. I will be stopping Every now and again, just to make sure that the podcast is still going, this is probably the third or fourth time I've tried to record this one this morning. Something's going on with the podcasting platform that I'm trying to use where you know, it's being very funny with uh, which recordings it wants to actually save when I click you know, the save button. So hopefully this one will be uh, the last one that I have to do and the one that actually makes it to y'all. So here we go. Today on the Free Will and Fired Up podcast, we're going to be talking about the occultic, satanic roots of the phrase mind your own business and the same title mentality that seems to have taken over this country for the past few decades and has infected society from our government to our schools to our jobs to our families and even in many of our churches that all seem to have adopted this kind of mind your own business mentality and philosophy. And for those who deny this last part about the church, consider how prevalent the out-of-context thou shalt not judge Bible quote is uh, that is used to shut down any attempt to discern and rebuke anyone. 
right? And this whole thou shalt not judge, I even had it come up in a recent conversation with someone, even just last night, someone very close to me, where I was trying to point out something, you know, that, that was immoral, something that went against, you know, the morality set out by God and and clearly was not going to be successful because it went against God and that they should not live that way. And this person I was with, who was also a Christian, uh, said, hey, you're not supposed to judge. And this kind of goes back to my point of this mentality of, you know, the mind your own business mentality that goes against what the Bible says, because anyone who's read through the Bible and has listened to more than perhaps these corrupt church leaders who push the, you know, thou shalt not judge uh, out of context quote, they would know that when the Bible says thou shalt not judge, it is a part of a larger passage where it's not so much about not judging as much as it is about properly judging. Now, it starts off by saying, hey, don't judge. It says to make sure that you are not judging hypocritically. Make sure that you are judging um, from a place of righteousness and truth and godliness. And only then should you uh, go off and judge anybody. And if you are not going to judge someone from a non-hypocritical place, from a, you know, from a godly, righteous, truth-based, you know, and moral place, if you can't do it like that, then don't judge, sure. But here's the thing, as, as a Christian who's operating under the word of God, under the direction of God, you know, when God says, hey, this person's in sin, you need to go off and rebuke them. You know, part of the Great Commission is going off into the world, right, going to the lost, and exposing their sin, or calling out their sin, rebuking them in the name of the Lord, and bringing them to uh, repentance, right, and faith, and genuine faith, all right, to God. How in the world do you expect to be able to fulfill the Great Commission, which is literally part of your only purpose, all right, as a Christian here in this world? How are you going to fulfill that if you're coming from the mindset of "Thou shalt not judge ever, period, for any reason, under any circumstances, ever." How are you to how are you to be a proper Christian in that sense? Right? Being a Christian is not about just keeping it to yourself, saying, I'm a Christian and I'm gonna hole up in my house and never, ever, ever interact with anyone uh, regarding you know the Christian faith or living a proper uh, moral lifestyle in adherence to God. I'm not going to encourage that to anyone, all right, besides myself. And that if anyone around me tries to do that, then I'm going to try to use an out-of-context passage from the Word of God to somehow stifle those who have a better understanding of the Word of God to try to get them to not fulfill the Great Commission. Because, oh, in my mind, you know, to judge anyone for any reason, period, whatever, even if it's coming from a place of righteousness, truth, and godliness, that no, that is simply not what God said. And this is a major part of the problem is that it's one thing when the world adopts this whole mind your own business, you know, don't judge me kind of mentality. It's a whole other thing when Christians tell themselves that they can't, when God very clearly and explicitly gives us the authority to go off and to judge the immoral, to judge the sinful, all right, so that we can expose their sin, expose their immorality, and from exposing it, then put them in a place where they can recognize the error of their ways and then recognize that God and uh, his truth, his reality 
and his morality is superior and better and not only for them but for society and so they should you know adopt that and not only adopt that but you know make that make that change make that genuine repentance and turn to a life of faith in in God in the God that revealed this to them and and has brought basically these Christians to them to reveal it to them and so that we can all work together as a strengthened unified community against uh, the forces of the world and of darkness and evil that are counterintuitive to the purposes of God. You know, we Christians, we have to really be united in this front, especially with something as basic as, you know, not just minding your own business, but making it your business um, that when it is appropriate to reach out and to help someone in a loving uh, godly way. And you know what? Sometimes in a loving way, sometimes to be loving is to call out when someone is doing something wrong, right? Is to acknowledge that what someone is doing is immoral. Sometimes a loving thing to do is to stop someone if you have to, even physically from doing something that is uh, damaging and immoral and unrighteous that causes harm not only to themselves, but also to society. You know, that is the loving thing to do. Even if the lost person, even if the immoral person wishes you would just mind your own business so that they can continue to sin, you know, without any sort of impediment, right? Love does not say, okay, you want me to leave you alone? Fine, I'll leave you alone. I'll mind my own business. That is not love. That is not godly love. That is not the kind of love that takes action and reaches out to try to help. Even when people say, I don't want it, buzz off, right? No, you, you are to at least try all right, now, if someone continually refuses to hear you out out of pride and selfishness and an inability to humble themselves to any authority beyond themselves and refuse to listen to reason, all right, if they refuse to do that, then, then you can go about your way. But that's not the same thing as mind your own business and thou shalt not judge. You absolutely are supposed to do so with only a very, very small set of uh, caveats to that, where there is a particular time and place, and there are specifics as to how you should do it if you want to do so effectively. So having caveats, having specifics as to when and how right, one should judge or one should not mind their own business, that does not mean that as a general rule that we are to mind our own business and to not judge. No, the general rule is still to mind our own business and to often judge, but we need to do it in the right way and the right timing and so on. All right, and the exceptions to that general rule are in no way license of this anti-Christian, anti-Great Commission, pro-Satanic you know, philosophy of don't bug me while I sin and ruin my life in our community. <laughs> that is just simply not... Uh, what the Bible condones, and that is not what any Christian or any pastor should condone, and the fact that it is such a widespread uh, maxim in philosophy and a phrase that comes out of quote-unquote genuine believers' mouths, all right, this whole, hey, don't judge, don't judge. Whenever we try to call out sin in the world, uh, that is a big problem. That is a huge, huge problem, and so that's why we need to go ahead and talk about it. Now, don't judge is just cowardly church speak for mind your own business, as I've already said. And every self-respecting Christian would know that any church pushing the message of leaving sinners alone to sin in peace doesn't understand the first thing about Christ or the Great Commission. The sad truth is, as we will come to find, these churches and most Christians today have been tricked into pushing and defending 
an occultic and satanic idea with the same dogmatic righteousness as if it were the gospel truth. And that's what's kind of funny, is whenever I come across these people that try to push these things that are blatantly anti-Christian and not supported in the Bible, they've had these little snippets, these passages that have been taken out of the Bible, out of context, and sold to them all right, under a twisted form of scripture. I've, have had it sold to them, and not only sold to them, but reaffirmed to them over and over again by these supposed leaders of the church who are supposed to know better than to affirm these things. And so what you find is that people say, oh, well, my pastor said this, and my pastor supports this. And so who are you? Well, I'm a genuine Christian who actually read the Bible. You know, a pastor you know, has a certain degree of authority, but a pastor's authority is not greater than God's. It might be greater than mine while we're, you know, in the middle of a sermon, sure, but it is not greater than God's ever. And so if ever, you know, a pastor or anyone tries to say something that is blatantly not a Christian belief or value and poses it to you as a Christian value and not only poses it to you once, but does it several times, if you think that that is supposed to be an authority that I'm supposed to recognize and shut up in the face of, you got another thing coming. <laughs> you simply have another thing coming. Right, because pastors can get things wrong. And so what happens is the people that go in and listen to these pastors who you know, preach his stuff again and again and again and tell them again and again and again, no, 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 you're not supposed to judge, period, ever. No, mind your own business. People that listen to that then go about their life and pridefully try to stand up to genuine Christians who actually read the Bible for themselves and not only read it for themselves, but have their views um, complemented by several other passages. And not only several other passages, but the entirety of the Bible, when you look at the character and nature of God and what he demands and expects from his people from the Old Testament through to the end of the New Testament, it's quite clear that you are not to mind your own business as a general rule and that you are to judge as long as you judge righteously, all right, from a non-hypocritical place, from a truthful place, a moral place, a godly place. And that doesn't always necessarily mean not offending someone, all right, because sinners are always going to be offended if you try to call out their sin. Simple as that. They're tied to their sin. Their sin is deeply rooted in their heart and in their mind. So if you try to say that something that, you know, that they think is right is actually wrong and is immoral, they're, of course, going to get defensive and upset about it. So you can't go out and say, oh, well, I don't want to upset anybody or offend anybody or risk offending anybody. So I'm not going to do it and you shouldn't do it. You know, that's, that's not the right way to do it. That's not how things worked in the Bible. You know, the, the apostles and so on, they offended people all the time. All right, but they weren't going out intentionally to offend. They were going out intentionally to go out and speak the truth uh, of the word of God. They were out there to, you know, with Jesus to affirm the truth of God, the morality of God, and to call out sin from ungodly people so that they could recognize the error of their ways and, and come to genuine repentance and faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior of all, you know, not just Christians, and that's the thing, right, is that Christians have been tricked in this idea of, <clears throat> of oh, these rules and these expectations, these moral expectations, they only really apply to Christians. That is not the case at all. As last I recall, God is not just the creator of Christians. God is the creator of all of creation. God is the creator of all of mankind, and that all of mankind were originally created in the image of God. Now, we were all, you know, corrupted 
you know, with the fall to where we're all kind of a, uh, a messed up uh, reflection of the image of God, but that all human beings are called to repentance in God. Everyone. And that everyone has a free will to either accept or reject that call. And that uh, to accept or reject the, the call from God to return to a place of your original state of being a proper uh, image bearer of God. So people will reject that, and that is absolutely on them. But that does not mean that we are not called uh, to go out there and be truthful and honest with people, call out their sin, uh, be willing to offend. Because you know what? Usually after people are offended, you know, oftentimes they might start to view things differently. It might not be right there in the moment where you'll get any kind of personal satisfaction, but it's not about your own personal satisfaction and gratification of knowing that, oh, I changed his mind right here on the spot. It's not about that. It's about uh, accurately bringing the gospel and the word of God and Christ to people to change their hearts and minds. And it might not be right then and there. It might take a while, but you're only to do your part and then you will continue on. And so <clears throat> as we continue on with this topic of, you know, not judging and, you know, how that's wrong and how it's just another form of mind your own business, which as we will talk about is actually a satanic uh, philosophy that for whatever reason has been adopted by the church. And for whatever reason, I think I already have my suspicions about why most Christians today seem to uh, support it. It's because again, that's what certain uh, church leaders and pastors have sold to them. And you know, they told them, Hey, you can believe this with the authority of God. Even though it completely contradicts, you know, the word of God, you can believe this with the authority of God. And so you can go out there and with your chest out and any Christian that says, you know, hey, mind your own business. You know, you can go out there and any Christian that tries to uh, reach out and actually help someone and call out sin, you can go up there and chest out, you know, with an, with an air of superiority over them. You can go up there and say, hey, you're supposed to mind your own business and, you know, don't judge and blah, 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 blah even though they're completely wrong. And that's the thing. Just because someone fervently believes something, that doesn't make it true. People, you know, fervently believe all kinds of wrong things. And they might even continue to believe it even after it is exposed as being wrong. And why is that? Usually it's because, well, people have a natural aversion to being proved wrong. There's, an, there's a sort of threat to not only their identity, but also their authority, because no one wants to look like an idiot. No one wants to look like they're wrong. And so, and of course, people like to be able to put off the responsibility of verifying things for themselves. If they can put it off onto someone else, some quote-unquote expert or leader or authority, you know, then, then they'll let them do all the critical thinking for them. They'll let them do all of the... Um, Bible reading for them. And so then whatever that person that they have said is the authority, you know, of scripture in their life, rather than, you know, themselves actually being a proper genuine Christian reads the Bible themselves every day. Instead, they put their trust and their security in that person when they should not. And so when you try to say, oh, you're wrong for saying, you know, don't judge, you know, that's not of God. When you say you're wrong for saying, you know, you are supposed to, uh, that you're not supposed to mind your own business when you say that someone, you know, is wrong for trying to defend things like keeping your nose out of people's business and, 
and uh, not judging under any circumstances in any way, period, you're assaulting their sense of security and you're assaulting their, uh, the trust that they put in someone else. You're assaulting the authority of the person that they put all this power into. You know, you're assaulting their intelligence because, again, you're challenging them. Doesn't matter if you're right, you're still assaulting their sense of security. And that's why there's this phrase out here, right, where, hey, the truth will set you free, but at first it's going to tick you off. And that's why we as genuine Christians and certainly those who listen to this podcast and really get the message that I'm trying to push about, you know, not buying into this whole mind your own business and don't judge philosophy. I hope that y'all get that. Look, dealing with resistance from other people, right, that, that's going to happen. Right, that's going to happen regardless of your right or wrong. That's going to happen. And that should not be a sign to you that what you believe and what you are saying, what you're trying to do is wrong or immoral or not of God. Just because you're getting pushback doesn't mean that what you're doing is wrong. All right, there's even this idea, and I'm going to talk about this in another podcast, where you know, if you try to help out an addict, they're going to get very angry. They're going to even say that you're almost going so far as trying to kill them all right, when, or want them to die when really you're trying to remove the thing that is killing them. You're removing the thing that is poisoning them. So they'll hate you all the way through it until they come out the other side better, and then, only then, will they have a more positive outlook on you, and only then will they admit yeah, I was lost. My my mind was twisted. And thank you for putting up with everything that I put you through so that I could come out the other end better. All right, I'd come out the other end saved from myself and from the uh from the philosophy that led to my downfall in the first place. You know, thank you for helping me through that and for not simply minding your own business <laughs> and for not saying that you are, you know, Oh, just supposed to leave you alone and not judge you. Thank you for not, you know, living up to that and for doing what Christ told us to do, which is to not mind our own business, which is to go out into the world and be a positive influence on the world in individuals' lives, to bring the gospel to them, to bring the truth and morality of God to them. Even if they're initially resistant to it, you want to bring that to them in a proper way, mind you. You want to judge them in a proper way. All right. You, if you're going to mind your someone else's business, you want to make sure you're doing it in a way that is in, a, in an appropriate manner and at an appropriate time. But you absolutely are going to go out there and you might not get thanks. You might not see the full fruits of it. You might just deal with the, the bad side of it. You know, the, the part where people resent you for a while at first. That's my, that really is all you're probably going to get, you know, most of the time. When you're trying to appeal to someone, trying to bring the word of God to someone who is lost and who is married in their heart and mind to sin and to the to those things that oppose God, you're you're not gonna get you know most of the time you're not gonna get that that satisfaction that gratification. But it's not about your own gratification. It's not about your satisfaction, and that's why you know even though you might not see it, even though you might think oh it's not worth you know not minding my own business. It's not worth judging others because it doesn't really happen right away. That also should not be a deterrent for you from doing what the word of God clearly says, which is to not only look after yourself, but look after the well-being of others. You know, not only call out sin in yourself and be open to people calling out sin in you, 
but also be willing to call out, rebuke sin and others, all right, and um, reaffirm what is right and good. That it is okay to judge them under that circumstance, so long as you're doing it in a godly way. And a godly way is not afraid of offending demonic ways. So let's do a quick check to make sure that the recording is still going. We're about 25 minutes in, and there's still so much to cover. So this one's probably going to end up being a very, very long one. So let's go ahead and let's try to get back into it. So the sad truth is, as we'll come to find, these churches and most Christians today have been tricked into pushing and defending an occultic, satanic idea with the same dogmatic righteousness as if it were the gospel truth. That's kind of what that whole tangent was all about. So honestly, if I weren't so dedicated to Christianity, I might be half tempted to congratulate the devil on such a masterful corruption on such a worldwide scale that so thoroughly exposes the ignorance and cowardice of many Christians. But uh, I make light of this prank to distract from the harsh reality that this is a horrible situation where the people who are supposed to defend humanity from evil have become agents of the very thing that they are supposed to destroy and combat. Now, this podcast is about so much more than what we carelessly overlook when people say to us, mind your own darn business. It is always worthwhile to better understand the phrases and ideas that the world props up to stifle genuine Christians. And the world loves to prop up out-of-context passages from the Bible to try to shut up genuine Christians. The, the word, the world loves to do that. Sinful people love to do that. Why? Because they take after all right, their master, Satan. And obviously from Adam and Eve, you can see how Satan doesn't just straight up interact with people in a way where it blatantly offends an obvious truth from God. No, usually how Satan works is he will take something from God and I will either take it out of context or will misconstrue it and throw in all kinds of like attractive you know, kinds of things thrown in there as well to try to help sell you on that twisted, corrupted, out-of-context truth about God. And unfortunately, if Christians have not been properly trained up to be able to defend the faith and to be able to defend the integrity of the Word of God from these kinds of attacks, then, you know, people suffer the same result as Adam and Eve, uh, where there is certainly... things that are sinful that are done in the name of God. And there, there are things that are sinful that, that ruin us, that bring us down. Not only us, but bring our families down and end up having a very negative impact on the world around us, our own communities, if we, if we allow ourselves to buy into you know, twisted scripture, you know, twisted sense of godly morality and righteousness. So you really need to watch out for that because, again, he doesn't just give you a bold-faced opposition to the Word of God. He'll sell you a, a twisted, corrupted version of it where you'll only be able to notice it if you are someone who has actually read the Word of God, who is actually willing to go in and not just read you know, part of a passage, or right? not just willing to read a line, but rather someone who is willing to read several passages. And we have the internet. <laughs> you know, thank God that we have the internet where people are able to put up all these different corresponding and related passages to any particular passage that you might be confused about, where you can double check, all right, is this consistent with the whole word of God? 
with the whole morality of God. Is it consistent or not? Or is this thing here being taken out of context? Is it just a small part that's being twisted that otherwise should not be defended? Use that. I use that all the time. I use this all the time. Whenever I go to try to talk about a particular topic or a particular passage from scripture, I'll bring up several other ones that go right along with it just so that people know. All right, the one I'm talking about isn't just something that I took out of context or anything like that. No, it's something that is clearly supported all throughout the Bible. So we really need to make sure that we are prepared when people try to sell us a twisted form of scripture. Okay, so it is always worthwhile to better understand the phrases and ideas that the world props up to stifle genuine Christians. And that's not always just twisted scripture. Sometimes it is, you know, it might come in the form of don't judge. But remember what don't judge is also saying. It's also saying mind your own business. Now, look, people don't always tell you don't judge. And more, more often than not, what I hear is mind your own business. Mind your own business. And so we need to know when people say that, that it's an attempt to stifle you in what you are doing. It's meant to stop you. It's meant to hinder you. All right, it's meant to slow you down, get in the way. It's a defense mechanism. And remember, defense mechanisms are not signs that what you're doing is immoral or wrong. It means really that you're, you're hitting a sensitive spot. It means you're hitting uh, a weak spot. It means you're hitting... a a valuable place if you want to try to make a positive change. Where people are the most sensitive, where their defenses really come up, that's where you should be applying pressure. That's where you should be judging. That's where you should be, you know, injecting the word of God and the rationality of God, the morality of God, the truth of God. That's where you should push it. So when people get defensive about a certain thing, good. That's where you know you're hitting a good spot. It's when people don't get offensive uh, or defensive about something, that's when you know that you're probably not hitting the main issue with that person. And so you, when you find these sweet spots, when you find these soft spots, these particularly sensitive spots uh, for sinners and other kinds of non-believers and people of um, heretical faiths and so on to Christianity, when you come across these spots where they get really defensive and uppity with you and they really try to strifle, uh, stifle you, absolutely push forward right there. And you better be ready with the word of God to be able to make the most of that opportunity. Because when they're stifling you, they're not just going to hang around. When they try to stifle you, that's a defense that gives them an opportunity to try to eject in some way. Either they will literally physically eject from the situation where they will just try to leave, or they will uh, mentally and emotionally try to eject where... If you can get past, you know, that, that, offend, that original, you know, mind your own business, if you can get past that and if you try to keep going, you can see it in their eyes. You know, you can see it in their expressions when they have already gone. They've already checked out. And so at that point, you're just kind of wasting your time. So you want to try to be quick and effective and efficient with uh, delivering the word of God, with planting that seed um, into their mind and in their heart. Okay, so we really need to make sure that we understand that, hey, a sense of defensiveness to what you're saying, that means you're on the right spot. And when you find the right spot, you need to make sure that you're adequately prepared to go ahead and plant that seed. And if you're not able to do it quickly enough, you're not able to do it effectively enough, uh, they're going to they're gonna shut you out. And better luck next time at that point.
All right, so that's why it's important that we understand what in the world some of these phrases mean, kind of what the ideology is behind it, because when people, again, tell you this whole, this quote of mind your own business, and I'm going to bring this up again later, usually when someone's doing something right and you want to talk about it with them and you want to try to get to the root of what they're doing, if they're doing something right, they don't tell you to mind your own business. They want you to know. They want to talk about it. They want to explain the ins and outs of it. It's only when they're doing something that they probably have already been told or probably already have an idea that maybe they shouldn't be doing it. That's when they get defensive and that's when they're not willing to want to talk about it with you. That's when the whole mind your own business thing comes up. It's not when they're doing something that they're supposed to be doing. It's not when they're doing something right. It's pretty much always when they're doing something wrong and they just don't want you to point it out. They don't want you to criticize it. They don't want you to threaten it. Because, of course, that's just the way human beings can be in our fallen, you know, conscience and our fallen morality and our fallen mindset is even if something is wrong and harmful to us and damaging us spiritually, mentally, physically, if you try to threaten whatever sense of homeostasis we have, you know, if we think we can at least get through life, even with all these damaging things that we're inflicting on ourselves through these harmful ideologies, then, then so be it, you know, they'll put up with it. And then here comes a Christian, here comes a genuine Christian coming in saying, you don't have to put up with that. You don't have to deal with this in life. You don't have to keep doing something that is sinful, that is killing you spiritually, mentally, and even physically. You don't have to put up with that. And I'm here to not mind my own business so I can help you as I am called to do. Because if I see you and I'm well aware that you are doing something that is hurting you and and is potentially being hurtful to the rest of society. And if I have the knowledge and the means, the understanding to try to talk to you, to try to expose your sin and to bring you to a genuine place of repentance, then I'm going to come to you and I will judge you, but from a righteous place, a non-hypocritical place. I can't, I can't, emphasize that enough. It will not be from a hypocritical place. It will not be from an unrighteous place. It will not be from an ungodly place. You know, when when genuine Christians go out and when they don't mind their own business and when they judge others, you know, genuine Christians know, at least should know, that when you are interacting with someone, you're not trying to win against them, right? You're trying to, you're not battling against them. You're trying to battle for them, And I want to make sure that that point is brought home clearly enough. When genuine Christians go off and don't mind their own business, and when they go off to judge others, it is not to battle against them. It is to battle for them. And as a Christian, if you're ever off trying to talk with someone and you're trying to expose their sin and you're trying to bring them to the light of the Lord, to God, into a better way, into repentance, and if they are being very, very hesitant to it, and if nothing that you're saying is getting through and if they've shut down, you know, then at that point, you have to check yourself and realize, all right, this person is completely shut down. Am I still battling for them or am I now battling against them? And if there's nothing else that I can do, then this is one of those times where I need to, you know, go back to minding my business, so to speak. This is where I need to uh, go about my way and try again another day. <laughs> as the saying would go. This is not the same thing as, as a general rule, minding your own business or not judging. All right, so we are about to jump into 
some Bible passages that I think go along with this topic. And then I think after the Bible passages, I'm going to pause the podcast and then return with uh, a part two of this podcast where I really get down into the nitty gritty of the satanic occultic origins of uh, mind your own business and the philosophy behind it and how it's related to Aleister Crowley. So there will be a little bit of a biography on Aleister Crowley here for those of you who aren't familiar with the guy or maybe you've heard of him but maybe not a whole lot about you know why he is such a controversial figure, especially in regards to his um, anti-Christian sort of philosophy and doctrines. So let's go ahead and let's before we go to the break, talk about Bible passages of importance to this message for today's podcast about, you know, not minding your own business and, you know, and being willing to judge others righteously as God commands. So, and not listening to those people, even people from the church who try to tell you, hey, mind your own business always and uh, don't judge, you know, with that out of context phrase. Let's talk about some relevant passages to that that I really want you to think about which is 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Is your pastor a false prophet? Are your friends, are the people in your family, people around you in your community, are they, not literal, but are they operating like a false prophet? Are they peddling a false morality? Are they peddling a corruption of godly morality? And are they trying to sell you on it? Are they trying to reinforce it in you? If they are, you better be willing to test them. And how are you going to test them? You better test them with the word of God. And you better double check. You better check all these different passages to make sure that they're wrong and that you know what's right. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen through 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So there's also this idea, right, of making sure that you actually listen to what people are saying and try to understand the underlying root of what they're saying, because things might pass off as otherwise uncontroversial, unoffensive uh, things, like when someone says, hey, mind your own business, don't judge. You know, on the surface, that really, it sounds like a fairly common, not too threatening, not too uppity kind of response. But when you actually look below the surface of what they're saying, when you really, you know, look at what's underlying all of that, you can see that it, it is underlied by a very satanic, very ungodly kind of philosophy. And so, yes, there is a sort of literal, you know, sense of watch out for those who try to lie to you, try to masquerade as someone that you can trust and someone who is righteous, you know, who when really they're peddling something, you know, that is a lie. But there's also the idea that even their ideas, even their philosophies, you know, that express themselves as these common everyday phrases that you might hear, even those common everyday phrases might actually be an example of something that is trying to pass as something good and moral and, you know, normal when really it is the opposite. And so we need to be able to have enough discernment to call that out when it happens. First John three seventeen. but whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? How does the love of God abide in you if you see when someone is struggling with something, especially with sin, and you do not make any attempt to try to help them or address it with them, to try to 
you know, bring them back into right accordance with God to try to help their lives? You know, is the love of God in you if you say to yourself, I'm on my own business. I can see very clearly that they're struggling and I know a way that I can help them. You know, I know that I should call them out on this and I should show them a better way, but nah, I'm going to mind my own business. How does that correspond? How does that add up with 1 John three seventeen that says, hey, if you do that, the love of God isn't abiding in you. What about Philippians 2, 4? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Hmm? How does that correspond with mind your own business if the word of God is literally telling you, hey, don't just concern yourself with your own affairs. You know, there, there are certain instances where you actually need to take an active interest in other people, especially, you know, if evangelism is all about reaching out to other people, you kind of need to take an interest in them and you kind of need to be knowledgeable of what they're doing. You need to be willing to interact with them based on what they're doing, not just yourself. Focusing just on yourself is actually very selfish or an ungodly thing, as Philippians 2.4 reaffirms. And the last one that I'll leave you with before we take the break is James 4.17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is a sin. And your ignorance, quite frankly, if you're a genuine Christian and you still buy into the phrase of mind your own business and don't judge, you better look at James 4.17, where you're someone who should know and was likely told at some point or likely read from the word of God at some point that said that, no, you actually are, you know, in most cases to not mind your own business and you are given the authority by God to go out and judge righteously or call out sin or rebuke sin and try to bring people to repentance. It says quite clearly here that if you've been told what is the right thing to do and what you should be doing and you choose not to do it, even if the reason why you choose not to do it is because you chose to follow after a worldly, fleshly, satanic, anti-Christian philosophy? It doesn't matter. If you're a genuine Christian and you know what you're supposed to do, you know what the Bible tells you, and you especially should know now, because I've been talking to you about it so far for like almost 40 minutes, you know that you're supposed to reach out and help them. For you to not do it, for you to not go off and refuse to mind your own business, For you to not want to go out and judge and bring people, you know, rebuke them, bring them to repentance. For you telling yourself, nah, I'm just not going to bother with them. I'm just not going to, I'm just going to mind my own business. I'm just going to let them keep going and sin. I'm just going to let them destroy themselves. If you do that, to you, it is a sin. And you know what? People might not understand this. People might think this makes no sense if they are coming from this false idea that, you know, as a Christian, you're supposed to mind your own business and not to judge. Well, hold on. God, how can you say it's a sin for me to, you know, how can you say, oh, I'm not supposed to judge and all this, but then say that if I don't go off and judge and if I do go off and meddle, you know, that, that, that it's a sin. How, how can I do that, Lord? How can I do that? You know, they're polarized because there's a supposed contradiction there. It's not just a supposed contradiction. It is a contradiction. When you look at these passages, if someone is supposed to say, okay, well, the Bible says this, but then my pastor is telling me that I'm not supposed to judge ever and I'm supposed to just mind my own business at all times and never ever concern myself with the affairs of others and to, to just mind my own business and to just ignore when people are going through this kind of stuff that it's the right moral thing to just look the other way and keep going. You know what? <laughs> to, to you it is a sin and you should know that it is a sin. You should know that clearly if it comes between 
you know, the, the unity of the word of God versus your pastor or your parents or your friends or whoever try to push this ideology on you as Christian, well, who are you going to choose as the authority in your life? Are you going to choose the word of God, so God himself, or are you going to choose to ultimately go under the authority of, you know, this worldly false prophet, this pastor of yours, or your parents who are clearly operating under an ungodly philosophy, or your friends who clearly are very worldly and fleshly, they, you know, try to push this idea onto you. Who are you going to go with? Are you going to choose the world, the ways of the flesh, the ways of, you know, sin, or are you going to choose, you know, the ways of God, the ways of genuine, real morality and truth? What are you going to do? And so if you are someone who thinks that you're a genuine Christian, you got some thinking to do at that point. If this is difficult for you when you read these passages, and I wouldn't try to excuse them away. I wouldn't try to excuse them away, and I'm going to go over some passages by the end of this podcast that people who profess to be genuine Christians try to use to try to say, oh, no, 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 you're the one who has it wrong. You're the one misconstruing the Bible because the Bible clearly says right here, you know, to mind your own business and to not judge. I'm going to go over those. I'm going to go over some of the big ones that people use, and I'm going to give you the tools and the understanding that you need to be able to put those passages that are taken out of context, that are misunderstood, put them in the proper light, proper understanding that is in line with the rest of Scripture. I'm going to give you a way that you can refute all right, those who try to say that the Bible is all for not um, addressing sin and not addressing people to change and to come to God. I'm going to bring it up. All right, that way we have justification uh, for what we believe and for and justification and authority to go off there into the world and do what is necessary and do what is commanded of us by God. I'm going to let you know. All right, let's come back for part two after a short break. All right, everyone, we are back for part two. So back from our break here again for part two of podcast number 15. And you can just feel it already that this is going to be a uh, at least, you know, probably two hour long podcast. You can just feel it at this point. Now, hopefully uh, there won't be any more issues or glitches with the podcast going forward. Something's going on with uh, the anchor app today for whatever reason where it is not wanting to save uh, uploads so audio the way that it used to I don't know if there's some kind of issue with my phone or if it's with the app itself really but something's happening where it's not wanting to keep these uploaded properly uh, it's been a bit of a hassle you know for the this entire week that I've been trying to upload so hopefully it won't continue going forward as we get into part two of our talk today on what in the world is the meaning of mind your own business and how it is really the result of a satanic and occultic philosophy peddled by Aleister Crowley and that mind your own business is just the kind of more modern uh, cultural manifestation of his ideology of do without wilt and how this whole mind your own business philosophy that is absolutely satanic and occultic and antithetical to God has managed to break its way into the church and has been kind of assumed by mainstream churchgoers and pastors 
and uh, you'll see the version of Mind Your Own Business that is peddled uh, in church by these false teachers, in my opinion, because, and I do, I am starting to consider them more and more with every passing day to be false uh, teachers and uh, heretics simply because the evidence is so overwhelming that churches that go around saying, hey, don't judge, which is just church speak for mind your own business, it is so antithetical to the Great Commission and to the purpose of what we as Christians are supposed to do here in this world. You know, it's so antithetical to what God, you know, wants to see from us and for everyone. And there's just no way for us to fulfill the Great Commission, which he has commanded of us, if we actually adopt and abide by the uh, don't judge ever anyone for any reason and uh, mind your own business. Never ever get involved with other people. Never ever involve yourself with any of their issues ever under any circumstance. You know, this is just so not the gospel at all. And yet people ignorantly go ahead and profess it as if it were the gospel, as if it were the word of God, as if it were the will of God when you know, anyone who takes five seconds to look up what the go- what the point of the gospel is, what the Great Commission is, anyone who takes the time to, you know, just look over, you know, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you know, how do, how does God interact with man? What what does God want from his creation, from humanity? You know, what have believers done in the past under God's direction to best fulfill God's will? You know, and how has that progressed from the Old Testament into the New Testament and you know, how does that progress into what we as Christians are, you know, called to carry on and to uh, bring about today? You know, what is our part in this, you know, grand uh, agenda that God has for the salvation of his people? You know, when you think about all that, just this idea of minding your own business as a general rule and not judging as a general rule, it just does not work. It does not allow you to be a proper Christian. (laughs) And so it's one of these things where we've spent the greater part of part one of this podcast, you know, just going through, you know, just some of the underlying problems and misconceptions that spring forward from the mind your own business kind of philosophy and what, what that's actually saying and how the church has kind of adopted it and just all the ways that it's problematic for Christians today for us to be able to do what we're supposed to do and how it's leading many Christians astray, and how it's leading many Christians, you know, to lead lives that are ineffective and unable to properly defend against and, you know, provide any kind of offense against sin, you know, the encroachment of sin into, you know, holy places and into um, communities that are, that were of God, that we're supposed to continue to be of God, and that we were supposed to expand, you know, rather Christians are now using this mind-your-own-business uh, ideology to allow sin to just run rampant. You know, it's essentially like soldiers who, for whatever reason, decide you know to just not use their swords and shields against an enemy and just lets an enemy just run right through them, uh, and then basically win. <laughs> and these soldiers think that they are doing a righteous and good thing by <laughs> just laying down their arms. And letting the enemy just completely take them over. And so we really need to get to the bottom of this. 
because the whole mind room business mentality is pernicious. The whole don't judge, which is just church speak for mind room business, that whole you know, twisting of scripture, it, it absolutely is satanic in the sense that it takes something that God said and it, you know, it cuts it up, it chops it up and it restructures it, repurposes it. It takes it out of context to fit uh, an agenda that is antithetical to God. And so since that is what Satan, the devil, Lucifer did, even back towards, you know, the times of Adam and Eve with how he tempted them and that led to the fall, the same thing applies here today. It's the same tactics and that's how we can pretty much know that it's from the same source. You know, that which, that which professes to be godly, that which takes something good and then corrupts it and twists it to support something that is not of God. I mean, what, what else could that be other than something evil, immoral, sinful, and of the devil, quite frankly, of Satan, of Lucifer. And so we need to really get to the bottom of this mentality. And I mentioned in part one that we're going to delve deeply into Aleister Crowley, who is a pretty much the the next main source of this ideology of mind your own business and how it relates back to his philosophy of do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And so we're going to look into his backstory, into his biography and some of his writings and kind of why, number one, where this mentality of mind your own business came from, but also why it's there. You know, because I think the why as to um, the existence of mind your own business certainly helps us see just all the more clear us as genuine Christians. It helps us see exactly, you know, why we should be taking a stand against this because the why you know, that we can rationally assume is, you know, the reason for him pushing this ideology. It, it is, as we've said, to defend acts of blatant evil, to distract, to convince people who would otherwise normally defend against it, put a stop to it from doing so, so that it can run rampant without any sort of, uh, any sort of pushback from otherwise prepared people who should be able to defend against it and stop it. And so <clears throat> let's get back into part two. So we ended part one by going over some Bible verses that <clears throat> pretty much refute the, any possibility of mind your own business and don't judge as being a general rule, you know, just a blanketed rule for any Christian and how it blatantly goes against the, uh, the words of the Bible, you know, the words of God. And so we're going to continue on from that with our argument as we delve into this. And it will lead into Aleister Crowley and his whole stuff. So two quick points. One, anyone who says mind your own business to you is a hypocrite and an idiot for not realizing that they are using a self-defeating argument. One cannot tell another to mind their own business because in so doing, one has to mind someone else's business. <laughs> you, know, you see how that works? I can't tell you like, hey, buzz off, mind your own business, because in order for me to say that to someone, I have to then mind their business. I have to, you know, stop minding my own business, and I have to then make them my business so I can tell them to mind their own business. You see how that doesn't work, like that kind of judgment thing doesn't work. It's right up there with the whole, hey, don't judge. <laughs> well, hold on now. In order for you to tell me not to judge, you have to judge me and what I'm doing and view it as negative to then tell me that I shouldn't be doing it. 
So it's a self-defeating argument. In telling someone not to judge, you're actually judging them. In telling someone to mind their own business, you actually have to violate your own morality by not minding your own business. And so we want to get into that. So frankly, it were, it's self-defeating that way because it's not supposed to be a good argument. It's not trying to prove anything to you or use any kind of logic. It's meant to lazily direct you away from noticing or commenting on something that someone is saying or doing, usually something bad, that they don't want being exposed or critiqued because they have an emotional connection or a personal investment in this thing and its necessity to remain sneaky, unnoticed, and uncriticized. Now, the fact that it is an illogical, irrational, and emotional claim is only furthered by the common use or inclusion of curse words along with it. That kind of leads into point number two. So, usually, if you're dealing with, you know, an argument that's based more so on emotion, right, than than on logic and reasoning, you're going to see certain things accompany it. And one of the things that I see accompany, you know, those who are incapable of properly justifying and reasoning the the evil and the sin that they do is that when they get frustrated and they try to throw up this whole, hey, mind your own business, you know, don't judge, they usually include curse words. And curse words are important. And I had someone even on social media back whenever I first made uh, this, this script, you know, this post where I guess he must have, it might have been me, could have been someone else. But this person who funnily enough does have a criminal past. I don't know if he has corrected himself in recent years. I don't know, but I know that he had a criminal past. And whether or not he's really changed, you know, just because someone is out of prison doesn't mean that they actually reformed. It just means that they learned to play along. You know, so I'm not going to assume that just because they are out of prison and are trying to work that they are someone who has actually repented of their wrongdoing. Um, you know, perhaps they just learn to lay low. But what I see is clearly when it comes to criminality and if someone led a criminal lifestyle, I can't help but wonder that if someone had gone to this person and perhaps not minded their own business and had perhaps been willing to judge, you know, the sin and the evil in this person and try to expose it and try to call them to repentance for it that perhaps this person might not have gone down the path that they went down in the first place. And so then I see this person who has his background on social media then you know, coming out here in response to somebody, I don't know if it was me or if it was someone else, um, telling them to mind their own darn, is the word I'll use, business. And you know, he was able to follow up this conversation with others with more curse words, you know, when trying to express his frustration at what he had come across from somebody else. And people were basically trying to make him seem like he was the morally superior one for telling people to butt out, to mind their own business, to to judge not and to leave him alone and to not have anything to say about what he's, you know, doing, what he's saying more than likely. And so it's just interesting that someone who, you know, let's just assume, let's just assume that he actually repented and was properly reformed after his time in prison. How could anyone still hold to the mindset of mind your own business, that that is a moral thing to do when, again, if someone had actually chosen to not mind their own business and had chosen 
you know, someone knew what was right and knew that what he was doing was wrong and then chose not to try to help him, chose not to try to help explain and expose the error of his ways to him, that he could be living a very different life right now. He wouldn't be having to do the thing that he's doing right now. Uh, he'd certainly have a better <laughs> a better hand of cards to work with to live a happy and fulfilling life. Uh, but because everyone chose to mind their own business, it led to him just without any sort of hindrance committing certain crimes. And, they were awful, and it was an awful crime. You can look it up online. I'm not going to give you his name, but it's there. If someone wants to look for it and say, what in the world is going on? Anyone can tell. Any moral person can say, wow, I really wish someone had, you know, reached out to him. And I really wish people had, you know, actually taken it upon themselves to be so selfless and go out there to him and try to make an effort to turn him away from this life of crime, this life of sin, you know, to not mind their own business and to judge righteously, not hypocritically, but judge righteously to try to bring him to the truth and to a a better, more moral way of living his life. And so again, he, you know, on social media, he has a whole bunch of people who were going right along with him saying, oh yeah, that's right. Everyone should just mind their own business and, you know, expletive here, curse word there and blah, blah, blah. You know, this world is so judgy, blah, 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 blah. Everyone, including himself, just completely hypocritical in what they were saying and in the ideology that they are. Uh, expressing and and I bring up his background and I bring up the connection to mind your own business because again people who often use this whole phrase on you of mind your own business they're usually trying to cover up something negative something bad or what they probably think or suspect might be bad but they don't want you to see it because they have some kind of personal connection to it there's some value to it uh, for them and so they don't want you calling it out. They don't want you paying attention to it. They don't want you exposing it. They don't want you trying to change your mind on it. And I'm sure, I am sure, not 100%, but I'm reasonably, I'm confident that back whenever he was living his life of criminality that he told a lot of people to mind their own business. And I'm sure that clearly by him continuing to ex, you know, express this, this philosophy on people in social media today that perhaps he's not as reformed as people might suspect. And I am not. I am willing to give a certain level of grace, but there's also, you know, grace has its limits. Grace is not meant to be stupid. Grace is not meant to exist in ignorance. Grace is allowed to still call a spade a spade. You know, grace is still allowed to say, hey, you know, you're supposed to have better morality than this. You know, this kind of mentality that you have is probably what has contributed to a lot of your problems in life. And here you are after paying a great penalty for it, a great consequence for it. Here you are still peddling, you know, this sort of defensive, you know, emotional kind of uh, philosophy that contributed to all your problems and will likely continue to contribute to more problems. When you go through life, where no one is permitted to try to have any say in what you are doing to try to call you out from committing error, or at least from seeing that error through to its conclusion, if no one is able to step in and stop you or get you to think about what you're doing, life is not going to go over too well for you. And 
And again, you'd think this guy would have learned his lesson already, but I think he's I think he's in for more lessons to be learned from this. And I think he's a good example of why we should avoid this and how just because someone, you know, says it on social media, just because, you know, someone says that, you know, they're reformed and, you know, they they're better now, that that doesn't mean that they're telling the truth. Right? That doesn't mean that what they say and what they profess is actually proof of a changed heart and a changed mind and one that is moral, objectively. And the only kind of moral objectivity that we have is that which is from God. And so if someone is not conforming to the objective standard of morality set by God, well then, it's not objectively moral, it's objectively immoral. You know, if they're playing into something that goes against the general rule of how to be moral and how to be, you know, godly and what's expected of mankind as, you know, commanded by God, well then, if someone's against that and if they're still professing ideologies that go against that, whether they're meaning to or not, because again, I don't know this man's life situation now. Is he still committing crimes or isn't he? I don't know. And it's not on me really to speculate on things that I don't know. All I can go off of is what I do know and what I am seeing. And what I do know is what I see on social media when he pushes this stuff. And clearly when people are responding to him, when he pushes this whole, oh, mind your own business sort of philosophy on there, which is probably in response. Someone probably got under his skin. You know, he probably heard something or saw someone or maybe someone was talking to him and probably, you know, hit hit one of those sweet spots, hit one of those sensitive spots that we were talking about in part one, and it ticked him off. And so he felt that he was, you know, morally justified in going online and giving out the hypocritical claim of mind your own business and uh, don't don't judge. And then clearly people, and there were a lot of people who commented on it, you know, who were in agreement with him and who were going right along with his rationality. And they were also going right along with curse words that he gave as well. <laughs> in this emotional, you know, hypocritical, twisted kind of post. And so you can see that when these ideologies are out in the public sphere and they go unnoticed or when they go without being properly checked, when they go without being properly rebuked, when someone doesn't, who is able to, doesn't then make it their business to address what they're saying and the motivations behind it and, you know, what the meaning is behind what they're saying someone doesn't address that and rebuke it, then these people get to go around and essentially, number one, feel validated in their sinful ways, but number two, they get to then push it off onto the public. And if no one challenges them, you know, and all people are seeing are people sprouting up left and right who are in agreement with it, all right, this mentality spreads. Words matter. Ideas matter. I know that in a modern America, we seem to be in a time where uh, people at the same time, it's a really weird paradoxical thing where on the one hand, people say ideas and words and philosophy doesn't matter. All right, really that we're in a very consumerist, lazy, philosophical kind of state. But then on the other hand, uh, those who don't buy into this obviously false idea, you know, the average the average lay person in America does believe in this, that, you know, essentially, hey, these deep philosophies too, these are too deep for me, not worth considering. What is the, uh, <laughs> what is the, the little spelling that they use now to, to express that, hey, 
too long was it tldr too long didn't read that that's a great way to express the type of societal mindset that we have that the average person has which is they go through life with the whole tldr <laughs> mentality of man what you're saying like it's too deep you know there's, there's too much to it you know, you're talking about more than just a simple basic elementary school level way of thinking about it so like i'm not gonna consider it <laughs> well here's the problem with that right is, is okay okay you're not going to consider it because it seems too deep. Well, here's how that works, right? Is that ideas, and this can be good and bad, for good and bad ideas, ideas always start off more complex, all right, more a little more abstract, a little more difficult to comprehend because of their complexity, because of their far reach, and the fact that ideas, especially when it comes to morality, it, it does actually require time and effort beyond, you know, let's say an elementary school level education, all right, it, it does require a good bit to craft that and to be able to recognize that. And then what happens is as it gets closer and closer to the mainstream culture, you'll see that these abstract, complex ideas get filtered and they go through a series of filters and that by the time it gets to the cultural mainstream, what you get are distillations of these complex underlying philosophies that, you know, people have this TLDR mindset towards where you basically the main culture, the average person, by the time they actually come across this philosophy, it comes across as just a simple slogan, mind your own business don't judge. And they think, okay, that seems common enough. That seems simple enough. So let me go ahead and adopt that. And what they don't realize is <laughs> the distillation of what you think is you know, non-threatening enough, what you think is uncontroversial enough, what you think is common enough to, to use in your own vocabulary and to use when making your own decisions. All right, that distillation is still heavily rooted in the more complex, abstract ideology that it is a distillation of. And this is the problem, right? With modern America, with this TLDR mentality, as you start taking up these slogans, all right, these simplified, all right, uh, phrases to live by and you're completely ignorant of what it's actually founded upon what the principles are that's founded upon what the ideas are that's founded upon and so when someone tells you or when someone tries to explain to you hey you're using this thing and i know you think it means this but here's what you're really saying all right here's the actual meaning behind it people then go right back to the tldr mentality they go right back to their defenses, they get upset, they say, you know, I can't understand you or what you're coming from. And so with people like me, whenever I try to come at these problems and when I try to attack and you know, rebuke against these very simplistic, uh, deceptively simplistic slogans like mind your own business, and I actually try to, when I actually try to get rid of those filters and those distillations. And when I try to take it right back to the source of where this slogan came from, when I take it back to the more complex uh, 
all right, abstract set of ideologies and philosophies that made it, all right, that are at the root of it, the average person can't, doesn't want to, either doesn't want to or can't comprehend basically the philosophy and the morality that they are letting into their lives and that they are spreading into the culture around them. And, you know, as as one of those Bible verses said, ooh, let me see if I can find it here. Either way, it was one of the ones that I mentioned already where it says, ah, right here, 2 Corinthians 11, all right, 13 through 15, all right, so at the end of that, it said, their end will correspond to their deeds, all right, so you take the ends correspond with the means of which it, of, of how it got there, and I would actually take that a step further. The ends, sure, they correspond with the means or the methods that it took to get there, but the ends also correspond with the ideas that led to the means that then leads to the ends, or that the ends correspond with the ideas. All right, and so you have to take it back further to its roots. And so what you see happening is people will use these simplistic, you know, somewhat non-controversial, non-threatening ideas that they don't realize are immoral and satanic, and they'll then live their lives by it, and they're t- they'll tell it to people, you know, whenever they're interacting with them on you know, on social media or in real life, you know, in face-to-face in public. And what they're doing is they're spreading, perhaps either aware or unaware, more than likely, you know, you can't tell me that most modern-day Americans are aware of what they're really saying when they're telling people, you know, most of the time to mind their own business. They're not aware, they're very ignorant that they are actually spreading something that is deeply complex and uh, definitely rooted in a sort of inversion of morality that has led to society being able to flourish, you know, leading up to modern times. They don't realize it. And it doesn't matter if you don't realize it or not. The, the results are evident. And so we're going to talk about this, you know, the impact that this whole mind your own business philosophy has had on modern America, and it certainly has not had a good result. It certainly has not had a positive result on our culture, and that not only has reached government, it not only has reached schools, it not only has reached families, it's also reached into the church, all right, which is certainly supposed to be, you know, like the first and last line of defense uh, for society, especially in terms of morality and the ideologies that are, you know, permitted to have any sort of hold into the minds of the people and in, you know, influence to the community. And so this simply cannot go without being discussed. And to those who listen to this podcast and are picking up, you know, on what I'm trying to explain to you, you know, one would suggest that the way for us to to combat the whole do what you want mentality, don't judge me and uh, mind your own business mentality the way to combat that is we need to make sure that we have plenty of <laughs> distilled, filtered down uh, slogans and phrases as well that people can use that clearly go against this philosophy that you know perhaps seem as uncontroversial, you know, and unthreatening as you know these negative and harmful ones are that people like to use all the time.
All right, let's do a quick time check before we continue on. Whew, another 29, almost 30 minutes down. So let's keep going. So that brings us into point number two I wanted to make is not just the phrase mind your own business and how it's you know self-contradictory and hypocritical kind of argument, but also the inclusion of curse words and, and the importance of why curse words are always found alongside these, you know, these ideas of that seem to be antithetical to God. So it's no surprise that when people use irrational and emotional arguments that often these people use emotional language, such as a curse word, and make no mistake about it, they are emotional and irrational. If your response to a logical argument is an emotional, guttural word uh, meant to threaten rather than to convince, uh, then congratulations, you've just lost the debate. The human brain has this funny tendency to use emotionality when rationality is absent or lacking. This common sense fact is also why those studies, quote-unquote, that say that those who curse a lot are more intelligent than those who don't is a bogus exercise in pseudoscience to justify actual ignorance. Those who curse more often are typically those who lack the critical thinking, evidence, vocabulary, and rhetorical skills necessary to have an intelligent conversation or a worthwhile, coherent argument. All right, so the irrational all right, expressions like curse words, basically they're an, they're an attempt to substitute for you know, actual substantive arguments and ideas. All right, they're, they're meant to defend. They're a last line of defense in a lot of cases where people don't actually have a solid foundation for what they believe or what they think. And so when, you know, there's nothing else left, when you find a weakness, when you find a weakness like that, when you find a weak point and, you know, subconsciously they, you know, something in them recognizes that, oh crap, you know, so this person has found a weak point, you know, in my logic and in my, you know, my own personal worldview and philosophy, then that's when the curse words come up. That's when the threatening language comes up. You know, that's when that defensiveness comes up. Because again, that's when you found a sweet spot, you know, that soft spot, that weak point, which is where you should continue to press, but you're of course going to get this kind of pushback. And remember what I said before, when you get this kind of pushback, when people start using, you know, curse words and people start using threatening language on you, all right, that doesn't mean that what you were saying or where you are targeting with your uh, evangelism, that doesn't mean that what you're saying and doing is wrong. Just recognize that this is a defense mechanism. And usually when this defense mechanism is triggered, it means you're, you got the clock running down on you where you are, you know, definitely needing to go ahead and plant the seed, you know, quickly into their heart and mind, and then perhaps excuse yourself from the situation after the fact until, you know, their defenses calm down. Okay, so <clears throat> God is right to call curse words in whatever cultural form they take across time and space a sin, because what is sin if not irrational and immoral acts and thoughts of aggression? And so as we move on, you know, what are people saying when they tell you to mind your own business, especially if they accompany it with curse words and all that, these emotional, guttural, not really logical expressions along with this, you know, claim of mind your own business? What are the other forms of this same phrase that we hear all the time? Because again, what we're going after today, it's not you know, the specific phrase, mind your own business. It goes deeper than that. 
it goes back to the philosophy of mind your own business and how we've already seen, you know, that that comes out in the church as thou shalt not judge, you know, that, that out of context misconstruction. But it also expresses itself in other phrases that you probably come across in your lifetime, like keep your opinions to yourself. Don't judge me. Get your nose out of my business. You do you and I'll do me. Do what you want so long as it doesn't affect me. This is my truth. So who are you to tell me that it is wrong? And all these sentiments and this idea of butting out and embracing relativism and chaos so everyone and anyone can do whatever they want and uh, whatever pleases them without judgment or condemnation is rooted in an occultic satanic philosophy under the headship of Aleister Crowley. All right, so now we are going to take another brief break so I can make sure this recording is going to be saved. And it looks like in part three, we are going to get into the nitty gritty of Aleister Crowley and how and how he is related to this mind your own business. Thou, sh- you know, thou shalt not judge out of context and you know, do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. And no one has any right to judge you or challenge you or, you know, call out anything that you're doing. We're going to get into this. It's, it's going to go some places. I told you in part one that this is going to go to some dark places and it looks like we are coming across it for part three when we get into Aleister Crowley. So hang tight for that. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back from another break and we are revisiting uh, podcast number 15. I think this is going to be like part three of this thing all lumped together instead of being broken up into separate podcasts. And so we are trying to pick up where we left off, which was right as we were getting to Aleister Crowley uh, before the previous break. So here we go. Let's jump right in. Let's see how far we can get. This is probably going to end up being a four-part thing, and we might not be able to get it finished today, but we will see. Okay, so all of these sentiments that we talked about so far, the idea of you know minding your own business and so on, so uh, butting out and embracing relativism and chaos so that everyone and anyone can do whatever they want and whatever pleases them without judgment or condemnation, and how it's rooted in an occultic slash satanic philosophy under the headship of one Aleister Crowley, who believed the following. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. As in, you are the ultimate authority of what is true, false, right, wrong. So if you want to do it, then do it. And if someone tries to tell you no, then they are wrong and immoral for challenging your agency and authority and for trying to impose another standard upon you. That for each individual, no one is supposed to respect any law or rules that do not come from themselves with the self-interest of themselves. A.K.A. this is talking about uh, subjectivism, relativism, moral chaos, self as the ultimate authority, and Satanism. And so as we get into all of this, and we consider Aleister Crowley, and what all his involvement is, with this whole, hey, uh, uh, you know, don't judge me, mind your own business. It plays into the whole, hey, do what thou wilt. Should be the whole law. Do what you want. That's the totality of the law. So if do what you want, you know, do whatever pleases you is the totality of the law, and that's above everything else, then we can see how this is playing into the whole mentality of you are the ultimate authority and no one has a right to try to challenge that authority, meaning no one has a right to try to judge or condemn anything about what you are doing, 
And so they might as well just buzz off and not interfere in anything that you want to do. Now, does that sound like a very Christian thing to say? Does that sound like something that even a civilized person would want to really communicate about themselves? And is that really the best philosophy for one to live by if they want to have a uh, positive life, you know, a productive life, uh, certainly a more peaceful life? And the answer is no. You know, that that's your ticket to having a pretty rough life, you know, pretty hard go at it because you're very difficult to be around. You know, if no one can talk to you, no one can try to reason to you, if you think that you are essentially the god of your own you know, universe, and that no one has any authority to try to, you know, call anything that you do into question, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to make your way through this world, because you need to be able to humble yourself and learn from others uh, if you want to try to last <laughs> for any uh, reasonable duration of time here in the world, you know, in order to make it through uh, to your later years, it's all about trying to learn from people who have already been there, done that, you know, who've already seen a lot of mistakes being made. And so you need to be able to take all that in and you need to be able to uh, listen to them when they tell you, hey, what you're doing, you know, has, has been thoroughly debunked for centuries, if not millennia. And so you need to change that way of thinking and that the way that you are thinking, you know, it, it, it's not conducive to a civilized society, you know. And so since you want to be a continuation, at least one would hope someone want to be a continuation uh, to society, then obviously you, you can't go around with the mentality and the philosophy of um, mind your own business. That's just not how society works. That's not how society progresses. That's not how it continues on. If everyone literally just minded their own business and didn't interfere with anyone else, didn't impose themselves in any kind of way on anyone else, didn't try to apply any kind of judgment in any way on anything or anyone, the world, society couldn't function. All right, society could not function. Humanity would not have gotten to this point. But to people like Aleister Crowley, that doesn't really seem to matter because as we'll see with his philosophy and uh, also some of his writings in his books, he doesn't really seem too keen on the idea of um, preserving life or being a positive influence uh, to humanity or to the world. Instead, he seems quite self-interested, quite satanic, and I mean, downright evil with some of the things that he's going to uh, discuss and affirm. And we're going to see that here, because I want y'all to see, you know, the person behind the slogan of mind your own business, do without wilt, judge not. I want you to see the person who came up with that. I want you to see them. I want you to see their psychology. I want you to see their ideology so that you'll know, you know, what's really being communicated by the seemingly harmless uh, phrase, mind your own business. So who is Aleister Crowley? So here are some facts about Aleister Crowley and his actions and motivations that make his law all the more clear. So he was an occultist, ceremonial magician, drug fiend, sex addict, mountaineer, poet, and a traitor to the British people. He drew crowds of followers uh, and hordes of critics. He was branded as evil and egotistical, a raging genius, and a messiah of anti-Christianity. 
So he was regarded as the Messiah, if you will, very kind of tongue-in-cheek title there of anti-Christianity. Now, if you'll notice, Christianity was actually one of the fundamental philosophies and worldviews that led to the creation of the entire Western world, and certainly continues to be uh, in large part an influence on the Western world and how, you know, what our morality is, how we operate, and uh, certainly what our relations are with um, other other countries around the world, at least it used to be, and of course that is diminishing, you know, with every passing day, with every passing year, with every passing administration, we see that by and large uh, we are losing this more traditional uh, pro-Christianity way of not only running our society and our country, uh, you know, relating to each other, what we teach in schools, uh, what our family values are, you know, but and of course, uh, what our presence is like, what we push on uh, foreign nations. We can see that's less and less uh, Christian, and really some things in life are quite black and white. It's either you're pro-Christianity and what Christianity uh, puts forward, which is the true word of God, or the the one true God, uh, objective morality, objective truth, an objective reality. Either you're on board with that or you're not. There isn't really much middle ground here. It, there is no middle ground. Other religions and so on that are along this spectrum, if you will, from belief in nothing, which is really uh, a belief more so in humanism or naturalism, but still, that end of the spectrum all the way to Christianity, we know that there are all kinds of uh, other religions along the way, polytheistic and so on. And you have to understand that, well, if it's not Christianity, if it's not Jesus Christ, then it's pretty much anti-Christian, right? It's antithetical to the actual word of God, to actual God. It's antithetical to uh, actual God's will and purpose for mankind and for the world. So you really need to understand this. So when someone like Aleister Crowley, who was very influential, not only on Satanists, you know, not just Satanists, but he was also quite influential, especially with his occultism, on a number of uh, other, let's say, activistic groups, even to today. And there does seem to be a good deal of influence that I've even come across with uh, Marxists, communists, socialists, and so on, who kind of adopt this kind of view of life. And of course, that spreads to everyone who kind of goes along with those ideologies. So you actually see certain feminist groups and certain LGBTQ plus groups, certain uh, members of those groups who are more of the revolutionary, uh, more of the radical side of those groups, you will see them uh, adhere to the do without wilt shall be the whole of the law kind of morality. Uh, just because, again, that's that's morality where you don't have any higher authority. You don't have any higher responsibility than to yourself, first and foremost, and then to whomever or whatever you know you please. There, There is no expectation beyond yourself. There is no God beyond yourself. Uh, there is no way of living beyond what you see fit. And so you can see how that plays into rejecting how these groups, you know, whether they be political or sexual, 
how these groups tend to be perfectly fine with separating themselves away from everything that came before, all the previous ways of uh, living life. We can see how they are perfectly fine with offering up not even just a slightly different uh, lifestyle and outlook on life, but a radically opposite lifestyle and way of life to pretty much the vast majority of all of human history. And they feel justified in doing so, and they feel confident in what they're doing and in the justification of what they're doing, because again, they come from the Aleister Crowley mindset of do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law, and mind your business, don't judge me, <laughs> let, let me do whatever my little heart pleases, whatever you know my corrupted heart tells me is pleasing and, and, and appropriate, and then let me do it with no other reference outside of myself, just let me go through life like this, which essentially, again, as we said, not conducive to a sustainable society. And that's why, obviously, you can see that as more and more groups adopt this uh, Aleister Crowleyan kind of philosophy, you'll see that as they grow more and more prominent in uh, mainstream society, whether it be politically, uh, religiously, socially, culturally, whatever it is, you'll see that as they grow in influence and numbers, um, there is a markedly negative effect that can be observed in almost every aspect of what, what would count as a healthy society and healthy civilization. And that's why, of course, we should oppose them and starting off with their ideology. Because as they say, you know, politics is downstream of culture. Well, culture is downstream of ideology. So we need to be able to try to attack. We need to be able to try to go on the offensive against the ideological roots of what it is that is threatening the not only Christian, but the whole underpinning of Western society that is seeking to corrupt it and corrode it and kill it from the inside out, essentially. Okay, so let's continue on with more of what people have reported about Aleister Crowley. And even that first bit about him being the Messiah of anti-Christianity, that's, that's not from me. That's obviously from someone else who has reported on him along with this. So then it talks about his family relations, you know, the bedrock of Western civilization of, and of any uh, healthy, sustainable uh, civilization, it, it all comes down to the family. So let's see what his family life was like. Let's see what his parents thought about him. Uh, so his parents viewed their son uh, as spoiled by material comfort and by his belief in his own spiritual superiority. And his mother called him the great beast, the unholy monster of the apocalypse, Therion 666. So, uh, if that tells you what kind of person he is right there, when your own mother is willing to refer to you as, you know, the great beast and, you know, the unholy monster of the apocalypse and 666, you know, a typically demonic number, you know, denoting the devil. So essentially saying you were almost like the devil incarnate with, you know, his morality and so on. And we know that mothers are, are usually the ones who really go above and beyond uh, with having that emotional connection and grace and so on, you know, with their with their kids, probably more so than even some fathers might have. You know, just there's just seems to be this kind of connection more so with mothers. We can get into that another time, 
But I'm just saying, usually it's observed that mothers tend to be a little more lenient, a little more forgiving uh, with their kids' faults. And to think that if that is the case, you still have his own mother calling him the great beast, you know, the uh, 666 and so on. That's not good. <laughs> that, that means that clearly he is doing something very, very wrong and has some very, very twisted uh, ideas. Let's talk a little bit more about the influence of Aleister Crowley, and this time in particular on mainstream social, uh, Satanism. Now, Crowley was considered as a Satanist during his lifetime, despite the fact that there is little to no Satanic elements in his writing, which, which is false. I'm going to go ahead and interject that from this other person's uh, biographical information. It's false. I've already looked into that on my own time, and you can certainly look into it on your own time. Uh, there's absolutely blatant satanic writings in there. Now, Crowley's esotericism were adopted into contemporary Satanism. When looking at modern witchcraft, Scientology, and Satanism, we can determine that Crowley still very much so influences Western spirituality. All right, so we can see that even up to modern day, in those particular fields, like witchcraft, Scientology, and Satanism in particular, uh, say, uh, Aleister Crowley has still a huge influence. His writings have a huge influence, not only in their philosophy, but also in some of their practices and even down to some of their slogans that they try to push into mainstream society. Now, under his polished collegiate exterior lay a deeply tumultuous man harboring secret plans of magical domination, maintaining borderline sadistic sexual relationships with both men and women, and delving even deeper into the world of the occult. Using the words of the messenger and Horace himself, Crowley transcribed the Book of the Law, the book that would become the basis of his new religion, Thelema. Now, the main teaching of Thelema was a similar principle to the one that Crowley had lived by his whole life. Do what thou wilt, a.k.a. do what you want, tell everyone who disagrees with you to mind their own business. Now, Aleister Crowley uh, has been a damaging influence in the popular mind, a trend facilitated by the general license inspired by Jungian thought, which so often desires to descend to the depths and integrate shadows that wise men transcend. In Jungian thought, finer standards are reversed, as Jung himself demonstrated in his private life. Crowley is a god of diverse sat uh, Satanists and New Age groups, and his feminine persona was known as Alice, to use his own name for that abnormal phenomenon. The ascension of Alice is not a pretty sight and is more than enough to sicken anyone even remotely sensitive. So here we have a, here we have a guy. All right. We're finding out he's deep into occultic practice, big into magic, uh, big into satanic principles, regarded as, you know, <laughs> essentially the great beast, you know, the, the great adversary to God, you know, 666, the devil Satan, almost incarnate by his own mother. And we see here that he is also affiliated with, uh, what, sexual perversion? We see even uh, bisexuality, and as we'll find out, there's even worse you know, perversions that he is uh, into, that he incorporated into some of his rituals and ceremonies that uh, certainly should have had him uh, under watch and perhaps had him in jail, even potentially. And not only that, we see that on top of his 
you know, inclusion as, I guess, an LGBTQ uh, community member with his bisexuality, we see that also it says that he uh, may have perhaps been uh, trans as well or certainly suffered from some kind of identity disorder wherein he has you know, himself as perhaps the main identity, but then there is this separate female uh, persona that he called Alice that would take over from time to time. And so you get this sense of, okay, you know, there are plenty of people today, you know, more and more sprouting up, especially on social media, on TikTok, that flaunt, you know, that one second they can identify as, you know, one particular sex and then mentally something happens and they completely switch over to, you know, a personality or mentality that they think is uh, better assigned with the opposite sex. And so you'll see them then completely change, you know, their outfit or appearance, you know, seemingly in the blink of an eye. And you can very clearly see that there is some kind of identity crisis going on and potentially mental illness going on with these kinds of individuals. And so uh, we can certainly see that Alistair Crowley happened to be one of those people as well who might have been dealing with all kinds of potential psychoses, uh, mental illnesses, identity, you know, disorders, and so on. And I don't think that, uh, that it's just a coincidence that his whole idea of do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law and his uh, embracing and other people's embracing of his uh, psychoses, sexual perversions, uh, identity disorders, and certainly his obsession with occultism and magic and, and uh, trying to identify himself as Satan, you know, devil incarnate, great beast incarnate. I don't think it's by coincidence, but that's a little too controversial, and so we're going to leave it at that for now. So here's some more commentary from people who have studied Crowley and his philosophy closely. So we have here something from Kevin R.D. Shepard. It is very fashionable nowadays to eulogize the beast, another designation of Crowley. In a typically commercial work, Colin Wilson justified Crowley's philosophy of do what thou wilt should be the whole of the law. That is as good as glorifying the personality of Crowley, which is bad form by any standards save the satanic. Meaning, according to this person who studied, you know, Mr. Shepard, according to Mr. Shepard, who studied Crowley, his writings, his philosophy, his actions, and so on, he's basically saying that the only ones who can say or properly glorify or give credit in any positive, you know, affirming way to anything that was related to Crowley, uh, the only ones who... <laughs> who can say that with a consistent standard would be Satanists. Be those with a satanic, downright, anti-godly uh, mindset and philosophy. That it would be bad form, as he tries to politely say, for anyone other than a straight-up Satanist to try to acknowledge Crowley as being a moral, good person with good ideas that did good things. It just, it, it boggles the mind of rational, moral people, that anyone could regard this man as uh, good uh, in any way, shape, or form, save Satanists. 
And this was from, I believe, either his article or book titled Some Philosophical Critiques and Appraisals, an Investigation of Perennial Philosophy, Cults, Occultism, Psychotherapy, and Postmodernism. But Crowley is not without his defenders. We clearly see that Shepard was not a fan, but let's take a look at someone who was, uh, one Lawrence Gallian. Now, many would step forward to try to use their wicked tongues to try to misconstrue or interpret away Aleister Crowley's more abominable views, such as on child sacrifice. Yes, he thought it was bad enough with him being involved in things like the occult and magic and thinking of himself almost as the devil. And if you thought it was bad enough, you know, perhaps that he committed himself to sexual perversions, you know, you have no idea the depths of how twisted this man's philosophy uh, and morality was. And we certainly see that on full display here when one of his apparent supporters, and certainly someone who, for whatever reason, sees something to celebrate and commemorate in Crowley with Lawrence Galley in here, we're going to see how he tries to finagle his way into lessening the blow of Crowley's uh, fetish, I guess you can say, of child sacrifice. Here's what he said. Crowley did not sacrifice children. Crowley always used analogies for things, so he called masturbation child sacrifice. In his book Magic, Aleister Crowley referred to masturbation jokingly and dysphemistically as child sacrifice. And this is from Lawrence Galleon 666, Connection with Crowley. Now, the proof that Crowley's reference to child sacrifice and his living out of the do-what-thou-wilt mentality and morality is more than just metaphors for lesser offensive sins, as some of his wretched defenders, like Galleon, try to promote, and can easily be dispelled by reading the beast's very own words from his very own books. And if we take a look at Chapter 12 of The Bloody Sacrifice and Matters Cognate from Magic in Theory and Practice. We can see for ourselves what Crowley, the man, the beast, the Satanist himself, had to say about child sacrifice. Or sacrifice in general, and then it leads into child sacrifice. And then you can try to tell me if you think he's speaking figuratively of things like, you know, manual self-stimulation. So here's what it reads. The animal should therefore be killed within the circle or the triangle, as the case may be, so that its energy cannot escape. An animal should be selected whose nature accords with that of the ceremony. Thus, by sacrificing a female lamb, uh, one would not obtain any appropriate quantity of the fierce energy useful to a magician who was invoking Mars. In such a case, a ram would be more suitable. And this ram should be virgin. The whole potential of its original total energy should not have been diminished in any way. All right. So right away, I, I do have a question for uh, Lawrence Gallian, who is clearly more of a defender of Crowley and who tried to say that what the stuff he was talking about was more figurative of things that were less sinful or less crazy, less demonic. So you're willing to say that child sacrifice was in reference to things like masturbation. Well, what about animal sacrifice that he seems to be bringing up here? What is that figurative for? Because it seems, upon reading it, uh, if it's a meta, if it's figurative language, 
it's a pretty elaborate one that doesn't really seem to coincide with you know the convention of using figurative language to stand in you know for something else this seems like a pretty straightforward description of hey when you're conducting some kind of ritual ceremony you you, you got to slay some animals in a ritualistic way but let's just keep on reading for the highest spiritual work, one must accordingly choose the victim which contains the greatest and purest force, a male child of perfect innocence and high intelligence. Uh, what in the world? How could this be in reference to masturbation when it talks about seeking out a victim, a young child, uh, and, and even of a particular intellect or IQ? Tell me how that... How that could in any way be a figurative relation to uh, masturbation. I just don't, I don't see it. And I don't think uh, anyone is supposed to see it because that's not what's going on. It's very clearly talking about seeking out young children for the purposes of his twisted satanic uh, ceremonial sacrifices. All right, so let's continue. Uh, a male child of perfect innocence and high intelligence is the most satisfactory and suitable victim. For evocations, it would be more convenient to place the blood of the victim in the triangle, the idea being that the spirit might obtain from the blood this subtle but physical substance, which was the quintessence of its life in such a manner as to enable it to take on a visible and tangible shape. Uh, so again, if child sacrifice is in reference to other things and perhaps other bodily fluids, and what in the world does blood coming from the victim, how is that connected to uh, to what Lawrence says? It seems to me like he's definitely talking about uh, murdering innocent children and using their blood in ritual sacrifice here. Now, those magicians who object to the use of blood have endeavored to replace it with incense. For such a purpose, the incense of abramelin may be burnt in large quantities. Dittany of Crete is also a valuable medium. Both uh, these incenses, or incenses are very Catholic in their nature and suitable for almost any materialization. So we can see that <clears throat> Crowley's going an extra step where he says, okay, if you don't want to be a straight-up criminal... <laughs> and uh, go after children and victimize them and potentially murder them, if that seems a little too much, then he says that at the very least you can try to uh, create some form of twisted version of what the Catholic Church is doing. And you can take some of their rituals, some of their items, and you can then uh, use it for this satanic purpose. And that apparently that is also a suitable substitute. And again, not seeing how this is all somehow figurative of some lesser, simpler, more rational uh, act. I'm just not seeing it, but we're going to keep going. Uh, but the bloody sacrifice, though more dangerous, is more efficacious, and for nearly all purposes, human sacrifice is the best. Hmm. The truly great magician will be able to use his own blood, or possibly that of a disciple, and that without sacrificing the physical life irrevocably. The central philosophy of Thelema is in two phrases from Lieber all. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law, 
and love is the law, love under will. The two primary terms in these statements are will and love, respectively. In the Greek language, they are thelema. Thelema means will, and agape means love. So again, you can see the mentality, the thoughts, the morality, the whole worldview, and the crazy, almost unspeakable practices of depravity, abuse, victimization, murder even, that Crowley was quite open and blatant about. And so does it, does it surprise anyone that a person with this kind of psychosis, with this kind of derangement and demonic uh, influence, does it surprise anyone that this kind of person wouldn't necessarily want this stuff getting out to uh, anyone but his believers? You know, wouldn't really want this part being out in the mainstream, at least not getting out into the mainstream without having people like Lawrence Galleon there uh, playing defense for him, trying to say that, oh, it might seem like he was very blatant in talking about this thing that is awful and evil and a criminal act that really should warrant him being put six feet under. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, that, that's not what's really going on. It's really this other thing, which is still sinful and evil. But hey, at least it's not this, right? You know, he's not that bad, right? You know, so just let it be. Mind your own business. <laughs> Don't judge. You know, don't judge. Let him do what he wants, as long as he's not hurting anybody, when clearly he is talking about hurting somebody. And even if he is uh, speaking of things that he would want to do, but things that he never actually did do, which, again, no one knows. But let's say, you know, even if he didn't actually try to involve uh, children in his ceremonial rituals and involve things like blood or potential sacrifice, let's say even if he didn't actually do it, he very clearly is thinking about and considering it as a part of his philosophy and as a part of his morality and a part of his inner workings with the things he was trying to achieve. Does it surprise anyone that someone up to that kind of stuff, that kind of agenda, would want people to keep their nose out of his business, would want people to mind their own business, would want people to not judge him, Yes, uh, that's because psychopaths and criminals and so on uh, don't want anyone interfering with their criminal acts, with their immoral acts. They, want, they don't want anyone hindering their ability to act out or at least to uh, live out to some degree this morality that they think is okay and acceptable. Uh, even though it's highly inhumane and that if it were brought to the light, you know, and if it were judged righteously and from a godly place, uh, this guy would have been put away for a very long time, kept very much so away from uh, any form of the public, even the fringes of society. He, he probably could have been locked away nice and tight for the rest of his life where this kind of mentality couldn't have spread, and yet, and yet it did. So is it a surprise that he and many others following this disgusting lifestyle of sin would also promote the defense of mind your own business? Right, as I was saying, see what happens when we don't mind our own business and we actually look into the origins of phrases and what ideologies they are connected to. We expose genuine evil that is rampant 
in the world or that the world has overlooked or been careless over by not minding our own business. Evil people want you to mind your own business because no one wants their own sin exposed and because uh, once it is revealed in the light, the true abomination of what the do-what-thou-wilt philosophy uh, is made manifest. It is the philosophy of the devil. It is the philosophy that led Lucifer to get kicked out of heaven. It is the same philosophy that the devil used as the serpent to tempt Eve uh, in Crowley, we simply see the unfiltered, uncensored levels of wretchedness and disgusting practices that human beings living under this satanic philosophy are capable of. A lot of people say, whoa, well, whenever I say it, I don't mean it that way. And even other people I think are controversial when they say it, when they live by this, you know, they're, they're not doing all this crazy stuff. It's like, yeah, they're not doing all this crazy stuff because they're not as bought in, they're not as committed to this philosophy at least not yet, as Aleister Crowley. He was the one who actually just put everything into it. And you'll see that when people essentially take on this Luciferian satanic doctrine of do what thou wilt and actually apply it to their life, you get psychopaths. You get mentally deranged people that uh, certainly are not healthy for themselves, not healthy for society, and are a straight-up danger uh, to society into humanity at large. <clears throat> now, we will pick up the rest of this in probably the next part, but I am going to at least go over some key characteristics of Crowley that are effects of his do-without-wilt, shall be the whole of the law of mentality in his own life that can be seen in our society today as we further embrace his relativistic, chaotic, godless ideology. I'm going to go over some of these points that you might be able to see prevalent in today's society that are related to Aleister Crowley and some of the things that he spoke about in his uh, writings. And I think after that, we're going to have to uh, call it for part three of this recording because we're at about 36 minutes already. And it looks like tomorrow, you know, maybe early tomorrow is when I'm going to get my chance to complete part four, the final part of this podcast, which, oh boy, is a bit of a doozy. All right, so here again are some modern day, you know, modern society kind of versions of his same relativistic, chaotic, godless, do without wilt, you know, kind of. Crowleyan ideology and worldview that you see today, you have prevalence of forms of Satanism, prevalence of forms of New Age religious mysticism and magic, prevalence of hatred for Christianity and traditional societal norms, prevalence of sexual immorality and depravity. So dabbling in things like homosexuality and sadism, for instance, like what Crowley very clearly uh, was involved in, prevalence of curiosity in the occult and the esoteric, Prevalence of potential identity confusion, potential transgenderism, and potential mental illness without proper help or correction. Prevalence of discussions about child sacrifice likened to abortion for various uh, shared benefits that denigrate the self-evident value of the lives of children to be rendered as almost uh, inhuman in, in pursuit of personal benefit. And yeah, in, in case someone missed it, Crowley's whole thing here. It's just a mystified, it's just a mystical version of an act of abortion where you would take a young, innocent life and you would offer it up 
you would sacrifice it for some kind of personal self-interested gain. And the vast majority of uh, women who get abortions, uh, the vast majority of them, their reasoning for doing so is purely out of convenience and self-interest and not so much because there's an actual uh, health-related issue. Uh, the sheer number, the sheer scope, the sheer level of abortions that are had today and, and the recorded reasons and the recorded motivations uh, are not conducive to moral acts at all. They are absolutely uh, pretty much considered a form of child sacrifice for comfort, uh, to keep uh, prosperity coming, to keep things like fertility you know, being in check and all these kinds of things that people who you know, sacrifice you know, their babies at these abortion mills like Planned Parenthood, you know, they think that this is what they get from sacrificing their kids. You know, they get, you know, a certain benefit, a certain rejuvenation of life that otherwise would have been taken from them. Very similar to some of the benefits that Crowley uh, was in support of whenever he wrote in his books about child sacrifice. And notice that he said the younger, the better. The younger, the more innocent, the better. We can't really get much younger or more innocent than, than a baby, you know, whenever it comes to sacrifice. And what else could abortion be other than, other than that? The taking of an innocent life uh, with no just cause for the sake of uh, immoral purposes, immoral justifications that are purely of self-interest by and large. Selfish, materialistic uh, fleshly self-interest. So let's keep going down the list. We also have things like the prevalence of viewing human life as similar in value and use as animals, especially when justifying taking a life for personal gain. So we did see from his book, whenever he was talking about sacrifice, notice how he went you know, straight from animal sacrifice into uh, human sacrifice, as if it was no big deal, as if there was no real separation in his mind in the value difference or consideration of an animal versus a human being. There was no value difference in his mind. There was no reason to pause or perhaps think or give more consideration to the murder of you know, this hypothetical uh, child than was given to the murder of this hypothetical animal. And I think that is also very prevalent to a lot of the satanic, uh, anti-Christian philosophies of today that seem to push this idea that human beings are nothing more than animals and that they should embrace whatever, you know, whatever fleshly, whatever primal urge they have as good and that no one should stop them because, you know, look at the way the animals you know, live. Look at the way that they are able to survive, even with their odd you know, practices, and you know you're in a crazy place, and you know you're going to start some crazy stuff when, number one, you view other people and yourself as being like animals, you know, no better and oftentimes worse than the animals. And we know that Satanists do. Uh, I think it was actually one of their satanic principles. They do view uh, humanity as being like animals. And, and in many cases, as they stated, Satanists view human beings as almost being less than animals, all right, more evil if you can say even, than animals. And so we can certainly see how, again, Aleister Crowley's philosophy and outlook on human beings is very much so a precursor to 
you know, Anton Zandor LeVay's satanic principles from his satanic Bible that we went over in season one. Uh, there's also a prevalence of a disrespectful view and placement of God and godly love as being less than, second to, and subservient to our individual wills and desires. So again, just like Lucifer wanted to assert your own will above uh, any ultimate authority. Prevalence of a misuse or abuse of the term love to justify and normalize acts and lifestyles that are not of God and not holy. So as we saw, you know, Thelema, it plays upon, you know, this idea of the will, and it also talks about agape, which is a form of love. And I can tell you this, and I'm pretty sure anyone can see from who Crowley was and what his philosophy was all about, that his understanding of love and how he expressed it, both through his words and also through his actions, through his sexual perversions, you know, his version of love is not an accurate version of love, and, and it absolutely was used to try to justify immoral, abominable uh, lifestyles and practices uh, that are not of God, not holy, and yet are more and more prevalent with every passing day in society, more and more affirmed, more and more visible, you know, with more and more power. You know, we are seeing people who have similar uh, proclivities, sexual proclivities and, and uh, perversions coming forward in society. And we can see that some of these ungodly forms of relationships and quote-unquote love, which is not love, it's more like lust, or we can see that these things are being more and more normalized. And we can see that they're being normalized because people are doing exactly what they did with do without wilt, which is they distill it, they filter it into something that is more uh, conducive, more uh, easily, more palpable, right? more easily digested, like something uh, like someone saying, mind your own business. That's obviously more palatable than some of this other stuff. And a person doesn't even need to understand the philosophy in order to normalize it. They just have to be a spokesperson for it. They have to be a walking, talking billboard for it. And then the philosophy, the theology, the the ideology will work its way into the mainstream consciousness from there. All you have to do is make it prevalent. All right, it's kind of like the whole Freddy Krueger thing, all right, where, hey, as long as you're talking about it, Freddy Krueger will then use his own way of coming to the forefront in society and you know, enacting his evil upon the world. You don't have to understand how Freddy Krueger works. All you have to do is keep it in the back of people's minds even through seemingly harmless mentionings and so on. You just have to keep it going. And it will spread like a cancer and take over from there, and it will wreak its havoc upon society from there. All right, so let's go ahead and let's call an end to part three, I believe this was. And we will return tomorrow with part four to end this very long podcast. So stick around for that, and I'll have it uploaded by tomorrow. Hopefully we don't have any other recording mishaps. Till then, let's take a break. I'll see you tomorrow. All right, we are back for part four, right? The final part of podcast number 15, which was supposed to be the last uh, podcast episode of season one of Free Wild and Fired Up. Now, when we last left off with part three, 
or during, before the last break, we discussed uh, Aleister Crowley and his philosophy of do without wilt, uh, which basically is is kind of the it's the origins, you know, it's the it's the starting point, it's the root of the mind your own business, you know, don't judge kind of philosophy. All right, because you know the whole point of do without will is hey, you are the ultimate authority. You are the standard of morality. There is nothing beyond yourself uh, that you should respect in terms of morality or responsibility and accountability and judgment. So do what you want, and as long as you are doing what you want, then you are doing what is right. And so anyone who challenges you trying to do what you want is therefore wrong and should mind their own business and not judge. You see how it leads to that. You see how it's the underlying or the root philosophy behind it. And so we delved into Aleister Crowley, his, uh, his bio, some of the things that he's done and said in the past that certainly I think warrant uh, his nicknames like the Great Beast and uh, 666, and so on. And that was called to him by his own mother because of his depravity, um, possible mental insanity, among many other things that led to his very satanic uh, philosophy and books that espoused the depths of this uh, satanic and occultic philosophy. And right before the break, we went over all the ways that Crowley's influence and his philosophy, his ideology, how it still impacts us today and how a lot of the actions that he was writing about and practicing that were very occultic and satanic for sure, but they perhaps weren't as mainstream. But now we were able to take a look and see all the things that used to be on the fringe of society, which is where Crowley, for the most part, resided and conducted his business and was able to let this theology and uh, ideology and philosophy flourish, it has gradually made its way into the mainstream. We talked about how, you know, obviously Crowley was a big Satanist, even though many people try to say he wasn't, he absolutely was. It's the idea of if it walks like a duck, if it uh, quacks like a duck, feathers like a duck, does all the things that a duck does, it's a duck. You know, whether they openly call themselves satanic or not, doesn't matter. If they're doing all the things that a satanist would do, you know, then they're they're a satanist. And uh, I believe there actually were some accounts where Aleister Crowley clearly was quite fond of people regarding him as a satanic figure. Hence why he, he loved the title of things like the Great Beast and 666 and all these other things that obviously were in reference to the demonic and to the satanic. Now he took that on. And so we talked about how society today certainly has a more prevalent form of Satanism. And here's the thing that people have to understand about Satanism and that it's not straight up just, you know, the worship of, you know, a guy with horns and a pitchfork and all that. That's not that's not necessarily what Satanism is. There are various branches of Satanism. And I would argue that the most prevalent form of Satanism is the most deceitful form because it comes masquerading as something less uh, assaulting than, you know, the whole horned pitchfork worship, that kind of thing. Instead, the form of Satanism that we're having to combat today, which is also similar to the form of Satanism that Crowley 
uh, practiced is not so much a worship of you know a satanic deity, but rather the worship of the self and of one's own will over uh, God or any other higher authority. And the idea that morality is subjective and relative is not objective and it's not found in God, but rather found in uh, each individual person, that they are their own God in this sense. They are their own measure of truth, they're their own measure of morality, and so on and so forth, which is what Lucifer, Satan, the devil, uh, thought as well. And his actions stemmed from that same underlying philosophy. And so what you see today, and I would argue you see this in a great number of uh, Americans today, is it's almost like soft Satanism. Satanism light, where you know they view themselves as kind of the standard of morality, it's, that it's relative, you know, that there is no objective morality, that there is no objective truth. Um, many people live their lives completely contrary to the will and commands of God. Many of them disregard God's morality and actually live in stark contrast to it, even though they might not outwardly say that they intend or consciously choose to do this. Uh, and invariably they do. And so what you see again is a form of almost Satanism light or light Satanism that was similar to Aleister Crowley, where it's not straight up them saying that they worship the devil. No, they worship themselves and they hold themselves above all else. Their own thoughts about morality, their own conscience, their own uh, rationality, their own uh, sense of truth, you know, their own sense of purpose, they hold all of that above anything else. And they don't care if even the Word of God says, hey, you shouldn't do this. This is right. This is wrong. You know, that's false. That's a lie. They don't care what God has to say. They want to assert themselves, their throne, just like Lucifer, just like Satan, just like the devil, above God, to view themselves as the God of their own lives and to not be responsible to anyone or anything besides themselves. That is very much the selfish mentality that is growing and is probably more mainstream uh, in America today than it ever was. You also have things like the prevalence of New Age religions and uh, magic. And really, New Age religions aren't so new. They're, they're the old religions. They're just given a new coat of paint. You know, they're just being sold to you in a slightly different way, but it's the same stuff. It's the same old stuff. And, of course, the obsession with magic, which Crowley was all about as well, uh, particularly sex magic. And when you know, uh, today, not only are people uh, certainly delving into these other forms of religion that are heavily based on magic, uh, spells, incantations, and so on, but... Uh, you see the prevalence of sex running rampant and people viewing sex almost in this kind of quasi-spiritual way as a form of enlightenment or awakening. It's, it's, it's essentially viewing it as sex, uh, sex magic, just like what Crowley uh, tried to practice. You also have things like prevalence of hatred or animosity for Christianity and uh, traditional societal norms, which Crowley certainly pushed. Let's see, prevalence of sexual immorality and depravity. So not just uh, sex magic, but also just all forms of sexual immorality and depravity. That's what Crowley supported because Crowley was, again, he was anti-God. He wanted everyone, including himself, first and foremost, to live lives that were uh, at all possible antithetical to what God commanded and what God 
expects of humanity. That's how you had Crowley pushing things like uh, bisexuality, homosexuality, and uh, other forms of perversion, even involving children. You could see that that was the case because, again, he did not want to view God's standard uh, in terms of sexual morals. Rather, he wanted to view the world through his own lens, his own standard of sexual morals. And he really didn't have any other than uh, if it felt good and if it's what he wanted in the moment, then he would go after it regardless of uh, how taboo it might have been. And so we can certainly see that our society today is all about embracing those things that were previously taboo, even though I don't think we fully grasp as to why they were made taboo in the first place. It wasn't because of you know, bigotry or anything like that. It was because we were listening to God and people all across the world throughout all of human history uh, were able to observe that certain sexual practices were not good for society uh, or the individuals that practiced them led to all manner of disease, early death, and corruption, not only of the physical body, but also of the uh, emotional well-being and the spiritual well-being of people that practice it and people that uh, had to be associated with those who were practicing it. It was not good uh, all around. And yet, what do you see today? You see just a complete indulgence, lack of care of uh, boundaries of any sort. Uh, whenever it comes to sexual practices, it's all pretty much on the table. And if it's not on the table, they're certainly working to put it on the table. Uh, you even see this with things like pedophilia. And when you know it, Crowley happened to be, uh, based on his books here, a uh, pretty uh, positive proponent of doing inappropriate things with uh, innocent uh, kids in particular, with some of his rituals. And so is it any surprise that uh, as we continue along with this mind your own business, don't judge uh, mainstream philosophy, that you're seeing more and more uh, satanic Crowleyan uh, basically agendas come up in media and academia, and so on. Uh, we also talked about how child sacrifice you know, could also be viewed in the sense of uh, sacrificing of an innocent life for selfish personal gain or convenience, which I can't think of a better description of uh, abortion. You know, the vast majority of abortions uh, is, by and large, a form of child sacrifice, whereby uh, mothers go and even though they're completely healthy, child's completely healthy, there's no threat or anything like that, they go and they have their child uh, murdered in the womb simply because uh, it would not be convenient for them at that particular time, or perhaps financially, uh, to allow uh, this completely separate uh, individual to continue uh, to live and to grow. And it's particularly egregious that society has uh, twisted the minds of mothers into being willing to kill their own offspring, their own sons and their own daughters, uh, purely out of convenience, out of selfishness, uh, because it might uh, hinder their ability to keep having fun, quote-unquote. And that is certainly uh, something that clearly Crowley, in a sense, with some of his rituals that involved potential child sacrifice, he absolutely engaged in them as a form of improving one's life and then certainly as an exercise in extreme selfishness. <clears throat> and so we should definitely take note of that. Uh, we clearly already talked about the disrespectful view and placement of God and godly love as being less than or second to one's own individual desires right, and wills. 
And of course, again, touching upon love, talked about how Crowley had a very twisted view of love. He conflated love with lust, and he used this sort of corrupted idea of love to justify and normalize uh, immoral, evil acts. And wouldn't you know it, uh, today, uh, certain groups, certain uh, groups that were in, that are associated with a previously sexual taboo, and certainly according to the Word of God, still sexual immoral uh, abominations, where these groups that peddle these uh, views and ideologies and practices, what do you know? They are also carrying on with Crowley's uh, twisting of love with their slogan, love is love. And of course, it's talking about how all forms of uh, sex essentially are okay. They're all good. There's none that are taboo. It, it's all on the table. It's all moral. It's all just. And of course, that's what Crowley believe. That's what Crowley asserted. That's why uh, Crowley put up the whole do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. It means no one has any right to tell you that any kind of you know thing that you find pleasurable or appealing uh, should be off limits. He said, no, go for it. Uh, it's all equal. It's all good. It's all moral and it's all love. So just go off there and do it. Don't worry about you know, any potential consequences, that's all just smoke and mirror and illusions, you know, by, by the crazy Christians. And we see that today where people are absolutely defensive whenever Christians combat, you know, this very satanic and uh, Crowleyan uh, slogan of love is love. And so we, we know as Christians that that no, not all things that are called love is love, that uh, what these people are talking about by and large is lust, sexual perversion, sexual corruption, uh, sexual abomination, which the Bible absolutely condemns, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament uh, directly. I believe even God spoke about uh, avoiding sexual immorality and not uh, taking part in it, and yet, here we are today, and for whatever reason, <clears throat> people on the right, uh, people in uh, mainstream Christian circles are not only incapable of effectively shutting down any kind of clear propaganda for sexual perversion, like phrases like love is love, uh, not only are have they been incapable of defending marriage and incapable of defending you know, what a man and what a woman is. And we even see that today you know, where you know, these people who have the truth, who have the truth, who have the word of God, who have every authority to enforce it and to not bend the knee you know, to people who are confused, lost, sinful, and of the devil, you see that they keep losing. And, you know, the people who are on God's side, keep losing. What is going on here? And I think that a large part of that, number one, can be attributed to the church being weak and the church being corrupted, actually, by certain activists and people who have come in they have taken on positions, uh, pastoral positions or positions with children, and they have pushed this idea as well, that, oh, love is love, oh, you know, the Bible, it doesn't really mean that, and they'll twist words that obviously mean uh, to condemn something and say, actually, no, it's talking about this other kind of form of something, la-da-da-da-da, and who are you to judge, right? Judge not, judge not, the old out-of-context phrase that, that is widely agreed upon by most uh, 
layman Christians who don't actually bother to read their Bibles and don't bother to read the full passages and don't bother to uh, second guess or be skeptical of what their pastors say. And so we have not only a weakening from within the church, but we also have uh, a lack of unified response. So whenever it's come to the prevalence of all of this propaganda and all of this uh, activism uh, to push all this, not only moral chaos, but also sexual chaos and so on, I don't think that people on the right and, and members of the church, I don't think that they realized just how unified and mobilized uh, these people were. You know, the people on the left who are, for the most part, the ones pushing for all this previously taboo sexual perversion, sexual abominations, I don't think they were quite ready for just how well thought out, well planned, well organized these groups were uh, and how well funded how well resourced they were. I think that people on the right, you know, people in the church who still are the vast majority, they still far outnumber in terms of persons as well as resources and so on, still far outnumber these activists from the left who invariably are pushing ideologies and acts that are completely antithetical to God. I don't think they quite knew what they were in for. And I think that the right and churches are basically still on the defense. You know, they're still reeling from the tsunami uh, that took place over the past several decades, uh, probably from around the 60s or 70s up to today, where people just were not prepared. People were not ready to defend uh, truth and objective morality and God and were not able to properly protect society or marriage, you know, the idea of the family or even the idea of what it is to be a man. We just weren't ready. And we weren't ready, we weren't mobilized, we weren't unified. You know, part of this deal with the right, and, and certainly of Protestantism, it seems to be this, this lack of unity, you know, lack of unified defense and attack. Instead, we tend to uh, appreciate and affirm and celebrate our, uh, really, inability to unify as a whole on any particular topic. We're all like, oh, no, 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 we're welcome to all manner of variety of opinions, and hey, you, you, know, you believe what you want to believe. You have a right to you know, think whatever you want to think about the Word of God, and you have a right to you know, do or not do whatever you want to for society or politically active, and you know, just do what you want. We're just all about freedom, right? Freedom that is not rooted in anything, is not rooted in the objective uh, world, it's not rooted in objective morality or objective truth, it's not rooted in responsibility, like, uh, the, felt, like the four founders uh, said it was and operated as if it were. Instead, what you have on the right and with a lot of Christian circles is not the freedom to do what is right, but rather they view freedom to do essentially whatever you want. And then they're caught in this weird paradox where they say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're all about freedom to do what you want, you know, in America, land of the free. But then when people actually try to do that and they cross a very clear moral line, then they're like, oh, whoa, no, that, that's not right. You shouldn't, you, know, you shouldn't be doing that. So they're, they're polarizing themselves because they don't understand that freedom and liberty were not anarchy. And that when you push anarchy as freedom, uh, 
invariably, those who are on the side of anarchy, those who are on the side of chaos, those who are on the side of relativism and subjectivism, they come out on top because you have a fundamental misunderstanding of how to defend legitimate freedom and liberty, which is rooted in objective morality, objective truth, responsibility, you know, and all these things, and especially human rights that come from God, which are limited, mind you. Even the forefathers put in our founding documents, it was limited, certain rights, which are inalienable. That means that you can't claim everything as a right, because guess what? In reality, not everything is right, and not everything should be right. There's a moral component to that. And so when you try to figure out, well, you know, what should we then say is right? What should we say is moral or not moral? Well, what did they do? They looked to their creator, and they made sure to codify that in our founding documents. And yet, uh, people on the right, people in church today, have lost sight of that. Even whenever it comes to Protestant churches, you know, they're, they're really not much better than uh, the political right where just as how the political right, you know, they're all about, oh, look at how many different groups we have that, you know, have certain commonalities, but they're just doing their own thing. You know, it's divided, but they're self-sustaining while divided. All right, and then with the church, you have kind of the same thing, especially with Protestantism. I, I need to do a little more research, but I would imagine that just from the looks of things, the Catholic Church tends to be a little more unified. You know, there's at least some kind of central authority there that um, that most of the Catholic Church tries their best to adhere to. Uh, but that doesn't seem to be the case of Protestantism. I mean, when you look around, there are all manner of denominations, and within those denominations are all kinds of churches within them that you know, have this different view and this different view and this split here and this split there. You know, the idea that there are so many chur churches basically all around you with different names and with different focuses and, you know, where they believe slightly different things and that's enough to justify a whole separate building, a whole separate gathering. You know, these are things that show that we're not actually unified. You know, there, there might be a common book or there might be a common supposed set of values and ideals and so on, a common ideology one would think, but is it really all that common of an ideology? Is it really all that common of a value and a belief uh, system if literally every time someone has a slight disagreement, instead of working to reconcile those disagreements and doing the work to find out who's right and who's wrong, we just sprout up another church, you know, we just start up another gathering and say all is legitimate, all understandings are legit, all denominations and all those, you know, sub-churches that exist when those, all of them are legitimate. And that's not true. It's just simply not true. And that's how you even have certain churches today that are just straight up not following the word of God. They're not led by uh, people that God said are the only ones who are supposed to fit the role of pastor, or elder, deacon, or so on. You also have people who do not fit the standard of, uh, let's say, lifestyle, including sexuality, where certain churches openly uh, profess that anti-biblical sexual practices and lifestyles are actually of God. And we can see how this causes all manner of problems because the church uh, in general says, oh, just let them have their space. Just let them have their space. That's just, that's their denomination. Just let them, just let them exist. Let that church exist. Let that philosophy, let that corruption of the church exist because, hey, we're all about freedom, right? The freedom, you know, where you can be wrong, let's say, the freedom to be wrong. 
And you do have the freedom to be wrong, but you don't have the freedom to have your error or your wrongness be considered right or good or true or positive or worthy of being um, defended. And so that's certainly a strong lesson that I think that not only politicians who still ascribe to you know, traditional Western Christian values and also certainly the church, I think they've lost sight of that. And I think that they're not realizing that when you look at the left, uh, when you look at those who are you know, anti- antithetical to Christianity, and I don't even want to say it's purely atheists or anything like that, but when you look at all these different groups that do happen to rally around the left, or they do happen to rally around more liberalism, what you see is is that they are more unified. And those who don't fit the current agenda, those who don't agree with or are weak in terms of doing what needs to be done for that given uh, agenda that they have, whether it be you know the sexual agenda, religious agenda, whatever it is, if you don't fit the bill and if you don't walk in step, then... You, you know, you get kicked out, you get kicked out of the limelight, you know, you're, you know, you're still used for resources, or you're still used for that, but, you know, you're still kept at a distance until you can learn how to play ball and play by their rules, and then you're allowed to come back in, and so they're, they're very good at essentially being able to twist, pressure, manipulate, uh, and so on, members of their own group to fall in line, or right, to fall in step. And we might think that, that might be immoral or unfair or wrong, but at the end of the day, it's effective. It's And it's only effective, even though it's immoral and wrong and unfair, it's only effective because those who are moral, you know, those who are fair, those who are good and righteous and justified, those who are of God, uh, they're completely fine with being scattered, with being disorganized. And so here we are. Here we are. So what's the point of all this from this podcast? So all of this is only possible to happen to such a high degree in society when people adopt the occultic satanic mantra of do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, law under love or law under will. So do whatever you want. Reject the God-given restrictions that say you can't or shouldn't do whatever you want. The only way you can live like this is to toss out any objectivity and approach everything from a relativistic, subjective, quote-unquote, my truth versus the truth, or, quote, mind your own business, uh, where freedom means anarchy. No one can tell me what to do. I am my own God uh, kind of mentality. And that's exactly the dominant cultural meme that we have today. And no, it's not a surprise that we then have a more satanic culture when it has adopted the morals and values of an occultic Satanist. Right, that's kind of the overall observation you want to make. Now, this country and all the great things it has done over the past couple of centuries has only been because we were uh, convinced by God to not mind our own business and to make the business of injustice our business and to bring it to justice, to make lies our business and to expose them with truth, to make immorality of all kinds our business and combat them with morality, to make what happens behind closed doors our business, because it always comes out from those doors and into the streets of society if we don't, to make it our business to expose sin and encourage holiness, to make it our business to handle darkness with light, to make it our business to not let an addict destroy themselves, and so on. 
Cowards leave things broken without trying to fix them. Cowards turn and run away from problems when they know they should run toward the issue. Cowards convince themselves there's no reason to do what is right when no one seems to care anymore. Cowards relegate themselves to subjectivity and relativity because standing up for what is right, no matter with whom, is hard. Now, cowards try to hide their ungodly deeds from the sight of God and his people. This country it doesn't need cowards. God doesn't need cowards. I don't mind my business at the end of the day because the Lord tells me that your business is my business, that your success is my business, that your well-being is my business. It's only as America has fallen deeper and deeper into sin that we have adopted the practice of keeping everything private, secretive, judgment-free, and relative. Anything and everything to avoid admitting the truth, that who we are and how we have molded our culture are not good and do not work, that they lead to destruction and chaos, that God's way is far better. Now, the only reason this country and our world has become so topsy-turvy and degraded is because the quote-unquote good people, uh, people who had the truth and the ability to take a stand, instead did nothing. Or worse, yet passively supported degeneracy, immorality, lies, and corruption in almost every institution, from the classroom, the family, the church, the government, and so on, because they had a warped idea of tolerance, grace, love, freedom, and kindness, because they think uh, that they are being good people when they tell others who actually uh, want to follow God's commands to, quote-unquote, hey, mind your own business, all right? To, to mind other people's business, you know, in any way, shape, or form, that's not being nice. That's not being tolerant. That's not being loving. <laughs> yeah, because they have no clue what those things actually mean anymore. Now, America wasn't founded on anarchy and relativism. It was founded on godly standards of objective truth, objective morality, responsibility, action, conviction, and the courage to say no to that which is sinful and wrong and false. Now, make no mistake about it. Mind your own business is not moral, is not built on truth, is not responsible, and is cowardly. You fear the wrath of man more than you do the wrath of God. You desire to befriend the flesh more than you do God. You'd rather live in a comforting fantasy run by lunatics than in reality created and sustained by God. That's not holy. That's not American. Or for the sake of your family, your community, and your churches, your country, stop doing what thou wilt and start letting his will be done, not yours. Now, stop defending people from being rightfully rebuked by saying, mind your own business, when people who are of more right mind than yourself try to do as the Spirit compels them to do in exposing and actually helping others recover from their sinful addictions and warped minds. Don't ever accept mind your own business again as a legitimate response to your godly acts of love. Wherever you find someone telling you to mind your own business, you'll know that you are exactly where you are needed and you know exactly what to do about it. There are those who use a couple of Bible passages loosely to try to justify mind your own business, and we're going to get into those in just a moment. I'm just doing a quick time check. <clears throat> All right, so let's get into those because I know I mentioned before uh, earlier on in one of the previous segments of the podcast that there are certain biblical passages that people try to pull up and try to say, here, it clearly states, you know, you are to mind your own business. So mm, you're wrong. It's actually moral and God's will that you stay out of everyone's business. Well, let's look at those. All right, let's check those out. So first, you have Proverbs twenty six seventeen, where it says, Whoever meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears. Or 1 Timothy five thirteen. Besides that, 
Uh, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. And you also have 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12, where it says, And to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, some of those, especially like this one here, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12, it does have all right, the, the phrase, mind your own affairs. And I'm not one of those people where, oh, mind your own affairs. That doesn't mean mind your own business. No, it very clearly is stating in there. All right, part of that passage is stating, mind your own business. But just like with that passage of um, judge not, you know, lest you be judged, just with that whole passage, you got to look at the whole thing in order to get the proper context. Because the whole mind your own affairs is not actually the general rule. All right, the general rule is something else. It's saying that there is a time and place. There is a way in which you are to uh, not mind your own business. And if those requirements are not met, then you are to mind your own business. All right, so let's dive into this. Look at the context of what's going on. There is a right and a wrong time to not mind your own business that is established in the Bible. You have to look at all of it. Yes, even the supposedly contradictory parts, uh, like what we just looked at above, and find the most rational way to see how the two can be true at the same time. This is no different. So Proverbs twenty six seventeen it warns against the dangers of carelessly getting involved in the middle of a fight between two people that are in a heated fit of rage with each other. It doesn't say to not help them out. It is instead saying not to interject at the wrong time, that would be dangerous and unfruitful, but to do so at a time when they've calmed down, okay? That's what it's trying to get at. So the general rule is not to just stay out of other people's business, especially when they're dealing with something difficult. It's not saying butt out of that. It's saying, hey, make sure that you have the right timing. Make sure that you're going in at a time that's going to be most fruitful uh, for delivering the word of God to them, to planting that seed for them. So again, the general rule is not to mind your own business. It is still to mind other people's business, but with the caveat here of make sure it's not when they're in the middle of a heated debacle or quarrel where they're not going to be able to really listen and consider and hear you out, and they're not really going to be welcoming to the Word of God in that moment to instead wait for a better opportunity to meddle in their business. So let's keep going. So 1 Timothy 5.13 and 1 Thessalonians 4.11 and 12, uh, they actually have something in common. So they are condemning those who spend all their time looking to point out other people's problems and gossiping rather than putting in any actual work throughout their day because it leads to dependence and laziness. So just like how the previous passage dealt with there being a right and wrong time to not mind your own business, these passages are simply stating that it is wrong to be so focused on the problems of others and gossiping about it that you neglect your other responsibilities like actually working to put food on the table. Again, it's about timing. When the time is right and how long the right time is, in no way do these say as a general rule to mind your own business. The general rule when taken with the other passages in support of not mind your own business that we talked about at the very beginning uh, of this podcast clearly show that the general rule is to not hesitate to help someone with their problems and struggles if you are able, but to be sure that you do it at the right time and to make sure that you balance the need of helping others and getting involved with others 
with your other obligations, like working and providing for yourself and for your own family too. The general rule is to not mind your own business, but to be mindful when doing so. The exception to the rule uh, where it is appropriate to mind your own business are, as stated, rare exceptions. Simple as that. See how the devil can get to you. All right, as they say, the devil is in the details. The devil doesn't always just sell you on a bold-faced lie. He's subtle. And those who are his children are just as subtle. And those of the faith who don't check what they hear and don't confirm from multiple passages of Scripture what they initially think are bound to be unwittingly made into false prophets who push twisted Scripture to stifle legitimate Christian evangelism and living. So that about wraps up another episode of the Free Willed and Fired Up podcast. Thank you again for listening. Hopefully you found something encouraging in today's episode, and hopefully uh, you are given the will to continue to draw closer to God and to be better trained up in the ways of the Lord. Like, comment, and share this podcast so that we can grow as a community and so more people can hopefully be encouraged and equipped in their minds, hearts, and souls uh, as you were from it today. So let folks know that they can tune into these episodes uh, on most major podcasting platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. If you haven't listened to the previous podcasts, I highly recommend you do so. And for those who have, there's still plenty more to come from Free Will and Fired Up, so stay tuned. Uh, yeah, I've already got maybe 20 other podcasts that are ready to go right now. It's just a matter of having the time to uh, see them through and actually put them to recording here like this. Uh, so there's so much left uh, to the end of season two, you know, once I get back to that. So uh, for now, take that. Uh, take what you learned here today, what you heard from me today. Consider it, if you will, if you're able to find, you know, better reason that disagrees with what I have to say, you know, then let me know. You know, let's talk about it. Let's see if we can reconcile what's going on, these different passages in the Bible, and let's see if we can unify ourselves together in a common cause with a common understanding for the betterment of society and for our families, for our institutions, and of course, for the ultimate will of God. So, see you next time, and don't be late for church Sunday. Have a good one. Thank you.